Episode 10. For a moment, you hesitate before opening Shori and stepping back into the comfort of the living ship. The stranger does not, easily slipping past you into the cargo bay and looking around in appreciation. Wow, she says, what a pretty ship. Unusual to see a sentient creature as well made as this. She runs her hands along Shori's walls and whistles a musical phrase that reminds you of rubber and plastic in your childhood for some reason. You shake it off. Listen, you... Mercedes, she says calmly as she leaps up to the upper deck without using the stairs. You blink a little in surprise and huff your way up to follow her after carefully taking Hoshi's box with you. Listen, you try again, but she's not listening. Her footsteps are so quiet you can't tell where she's gone and part of you wonders why you're even trying to keep a handle on her. You intuitively trust her, which promptly makes your rational brain scream danger in red letters, but you can't help it. With a little mental effort, you kick the, kill the internal alarm bells and head back to the med bay. When you open the box over the stasis bed, Hoshi sort of oozes out. His form is definitely not cohesive now, just a confused mass of baby lightning and turquoise smoke. Oof, he looks rough, says Mercedes over your shoulder. Yeah, you say not even surprised that she's popped up unheard of behind you and continue rooting around in the cabinets for something that emits high energy. anything. After a moment, you hear a whirr of something activating behind you. When you turn, you see that Mercedes has turned on what can only be sun lamps installed in the biobed. Hmm, you say surprised you didn't see them before. The biobeds have sun lamps? Yep, says Mercedes. It's so organic skin can produce vitamin D during long space missions. Organics are so needy, you think, as you find a portable CT scanner and lug it over to the bed. It's battery-powered, so it only has a couple hours' worth of juice, but you figure x-rays are energetic and it won't hurt smoke hushy. It might hurt you, Mercedes and Shori, though, so you make sure to stick it inside the lead-lined stasis box before you turn it on and angle it into the hushy smoke. Good idea, says Mercedes appreciatively, giving you a kiss on the cheek and draping her arms comfortably around your shoulders, as if personal space was meaningless for her. He'll be all right soon. I like your ship. Pre-scream, right? Looks like it. What are you talking about, you mutter, grumpy. Hoshi might have screamed in. Screamed in it a couple times, but you trail off. She's dropped to her hands and is hand walk, handstand walking behind you up the stairs as you talk. What are you doing? Practicing. She says, letting her legs fall over in front of her head so she's bent in half with her funny tanned face staring up at you. You notice her skin is covered in delicate, faint tattoos, even around her exposed skull. It's oddly attractive while being intensely off-putting. Practicing for what? Life. What does that mean? She flows back to stand and leaps up to the railing to balance walk along it, leaving you behind. What does life mean? Cass, you have to work on your internal connection to the universe if you have to ask me that. No, I, I meant what are you, why are you practicing? It, it can't just be for life. You rush to catch up to her. Why not? Aren't we all just practicing for life? You roll your eyes, definitely uninterested in continuing the conversation into philosophy. Fine, forget I asked. Okay, she says, flipping forward into a smooth tumble off the railing and into the control room where you're heading. Thank you for letting me stay with you. Who's letting you do anything, you grumble. You just won't leave. That's how you know it's a good thing, she says happily. 
It's nice that you're here. Maybe you can talk to the Thiel agents messing up the dig site and making them make them leave. Your throat co closes immediately. Thiel is here? You have a moment of blinding panic. Thiel Industries didn't just let people leave. It was run in the family style. You lived and died in the company. Don't panic, you tell yourself. They think you're dead. It's been over 20 years. No one has come for you. You did a good job. No one suspects. There's a little quiver in your gut, though. Hoshi put it together. Your conscious brain chimes in. If Hoshi could figure it out, maybe Mother could have, too. You swallow hard and realize Mercedes has shoved his, her face into yours, uncomfortably close with a listening look. Get out of my head, you think at her scowling. This is none of your business. I think my timeline might be messed up, so that's a good note to continue this. I should probably make something a little bit more official. It's not my business? She blinks as if surprised. Well, I could have sworn it was. Are you sure? Yes, you fire back. Go away. Hmm. Okay, but if I go away, how will you get Hoshi to the shell regeneration chamber that's just a few miles away? What? You ask cleverly. Yeah, she says, idly swinging herself up to the top of the fire station cabinet to perch, looking like a giant, skinny, deranged cat. This is a Sunyata homeworld. There's a whole mess of ruins and tech still here. That's why Thiel is rooting around. And Wuxing. And Evo. There's a lot of corporate types around lately. As another note, I think I need to bring Wuxing in more. They don't have a big role right now. A Sunyata homeworld? You're surprised. No, more than surprised. I thought Amcor destroyed all of them years ago. Destroyed? Well, yes. I mean, I guess they blew up everything they could see. But you know, their robots are kind of dumb. So there was a lot they couldn't see. Like people do. You talk weird, you say, scowling at her. So there's a whole bunch of Sunyata ruins here that are still active that we could maybe use to help Hoshi? Help Hoshi. She taps her chin a little. I mean, I suppose it depends on what you mean by help. You growl in irritation. Make him solid again, you spit out. You know, heal him. Healing. Healing Hoshi will be complicated. Making him solid may actually hurt him, depending on how you- Oh, stop. Can we just make him a body again? She nods happily at the simple question. Absolutely. I can even get you two to the regeneration chamber without issue. And we can reinstall him in a shell? Uh-huh. She flicks her legs back and forth contentedly, reinforcing the image of a satisfied cat for you. We can do both of those things. And we can heal him. Her legs stop. Well, we can put his body back together... But the soul wounds won't go away, and they might even get worse if he continues down this path. What path? What's a soul wound? She leaps down to put her hand over your heart, and her eyes go unfocused for a minute. The moment she touches you, you seem to see a splash of inhuman blood arc across your face and chest, 
For a moment you can taste it, sweet and musty against your lips, and soot making your eyes itch as you stare across the burned lab. You cough, rubbing your hands against your mouth to get rid of the non-existent blood, squeezing your eyes closed, but there's nothing there. It was just in your head. You shove her away. Her face is sad, full of compassion. That is a soul wound, Cass. Don't touch me, you whisper, holding up one hand while the other traces your lips to find the blood. There's none, but the lingering sensation of it makes you want to vomit. Don't be ridiculous, we're friends. Between one heartbeat and the next, she's in front of you with her arms wrapped around you in a comforting hug. You imagine this is what it would have been like having a mother who loved you. You feel warm and safe. Exactly, she says to your unspoken reaction. See, I love you and forgive you and absolve you of all your sins. She pushes you away a little to scowl at you. And drug use? Really, Cass? I expected better of you. Sar, you're about to apologize before remembering that this person is a total stranger, obviously rooting around your brain without consent. What? What's happening here? You step back so you can get a proper look at her. What are you? She laughs at the expression on your face. So serious, Cass. Don't worry, you won't have heard of my kind. I wasn't lying when I said me and Hoshi were a kind of kin. Don't sweat. I can't lie. It's impossible. I can't kill anything either, at least not directly, so you're safe. You frown. But I saw you beating the shit out of all those mercenaries. Well, of course. Beating the shit out of someone is still not killing them. I'm a, a flexible pacifist, I guess you could say. Nonviolence and me have an open relationship. She laughs at her own joke. I'm a temperance monk, in case you've heard of such things, but... She flips over to give you an oblique stare from being backwards and upside down. You don't seem like the observant type. No offense. How would you know? She hands you the contents of your pockets innocently. A handful of small change, part of the cesium clock face you took apart yesterday, a couple small tools you jammed in there since you always had to look for them in your workshop. You glare at her. Was that really necessary? She laughs and does another flip out to the corridor. Of course not, but it was fun. Are we going to get the rest of that ship for you? Do you want to go on an adventure? Not really, you mutter to yourself. Fucking crazy woman. Aren't we all a little crazy? Came her retort. No eavesdropping. It doesn't take very long for you and Mercedes to strip the mercenary ship, even though the storm seems to have died down. That should probably be helped by storm. You're even able to blow up a portion of it from the chemicals conveniently stationed in its gut to obscure the fact that it's been looted, at least to the casual observer, but you can feel something not right. Mercedes is also quiet, which worries you. As you head back to Shore, she abruptly stops, swings a vine around both of you and the carriage roared, and yanks you up a tree before leaping up to a branch, effortless as the wind. I don't think I like this section very much. Hey, you start. She places a hand over your mouth and a finger to her lips. Several moments later, a rough-looking party wanders below you. They seem poorly equipped for this rain rainforest world, wearing too many clothes that are all soaked. 
and uncomfortable looking. And they're carrying an awful lot of stuff. They seem to be looking for something very specific. You ease Zubeda's rifle down into the crook of your arm and try to find a comfortable place on the branch. Mercedes gently moves the barrel down and away from the group below you with a tiny shake of her head. Wait, comes a feather-soft voice in your head. There are more of them, many more. You start a little, but it feels oddly familiar to Hoshi's mind voice. So you don't mind. It's actually very soothing, like running cold water on a burn. That analogy immediately makes you uncomfortable, for reasons you don't understand, so you shove the feeling away and focus on observing the crew. You can't be sure, but you think Mercedes might be amused by your reaction. The leader of whatever this group was seems to find the thing that he's looking for. He's an older man, gruff-looking, dirty, but has an aura of authority that paternalistic old men seem to have when they are in charge. He motions one of the younger crew over to him and points to a rock. It looks ordinary enough, covered in greenery and organic bits, but sure enough, the young woman takes out a complicated-looking gadget waves it over the rock face, and the whole image sputters and collapses. You breathe out, impressed. It was a good hologram. So good, you thought it was real jungle, perfectly matched to the place. You hear Mercedes curse under her breath. The men set up a perimeter. Crew sets up a perimeter with odd cone-shaped things that hum and shimmer, reminding you of a generated EM field the same ones the mercenaries used on Hoshi. Another man uses two pixes and a tiny rolled bundle of what could only be explosives to blast open the side of the exposed gray wall that had once been simple rock. Even as you watch, all the hallmarks of an explosion take place, but in absolute silence. There's a shiver in the ground, debris gets thrown up, the crew cower inside their shielding. But it's dead quiet, which is the only reason you can hear a whisper of sound next to you as Mercedes leaps from branch to branch until she's directly over the salvage crew. Your view is obscured, obscured by dusk and smoke, but you can easily see her drop into the center of the group. So I think this should be whooshing, not feel. So let's go back up and let's correct this. Hmm. I think we're going to make Wuxing the Dragon Hunter clan that works for Thiel a little bit earlier in this. 
Your view is obscured by dust and smoke, but you can easily see her drop into the center of the group. She's produced some sort of telescoping staff from within her rags and has planted it into the earth like an anchor. As you watch, she leaps from person to person to staff to the next opponent. Her hands a blur as she strikes before moving to the next one, catching herself back on her staff before launching again. It's over in just a heartbeat. You delicately clear your throat and she leaps back to your tree, to its base where she secured the vine, yanks you and the droid back up before lowering you to the forest floor. Thanks, you say, a little breath breathless from the journey, and you have to stabilize the servo whose motion sensors have gotten all confused from the unexpected vertical destabilization. But I thought you didn't kill people. You look around at the half dozen bodies in the EM shield and raise your eyebrows. What's all this then? Pfft. She leans down to one, placing her ear over the man's mouth. He breathes. They're fine. Just a quick nap. And maybe a little, quote, forget me help. She touches her forefinger to the man's forehead and whispers sleep. And like magic, his breath deepens and he curls into himself like a child. You step carefully over him as you make your way into the EM shield. After she's done repeating the exercise, you lean close to her and close to the gray wall in front of you both. What is this? What are you doing? She sighs a little, surveying the scene. My job, unfortunately. She gives you a beautiful smile. Just think, this would have been you if I hadn't heard Hoshi in my head. What? You're disconcerted. So that's what she was doing out here? This would have been me? Great. Um, thank you for not beating me up and making me forget my own name. You're welcome. Here, help me stow all these EM shields and reactivate the holograms. And we'll let these children sleep it off. You and I might as well use the door they made for us, since I'll just have to fix it anyway. The virtuous always get the hard jobs. Hurry, Cass. Grab a leg and pull. We're burning daylight. It only takes a minute. When done, Mercedes pulls out a holocron, doing something arcane and typically organic to the gray wall insert thing that the second man had fussed with, and immediately the jungle springs back into existence, along with a very subtle... Don't look at me, I'm just forest. Nothing to see here feeling. That makes it hard for you to focus on the spot for any length of time. Your mind seems slippery, like it keeps forgetting why you want to see that particular spot of jungle anyway. It gives you a headache. Kaz, Mercedes is looking at you. Are you all right? Fine, you say, and then have to blink a couple times to make sure your brain stays where you put it. What did you do? Oh, don't worry about it. Hmm. I wouldn't have expected this to have such an effect on you with all your cybernetic implants. You must be more organic on the inside than you look. Her comment annoys you for some reason. I'm still sort of human, you grouse. Just needed a few replacement parts and upgrades to make it a decent shell. Of course, of course. She kisses you happily on the cheek and you wipe it off like a baby. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, Cass. Hmm. But you don't really know how to reply and you don't really want her to know that you kind of like being fussed over, so you just glare as she grabs your hand and drags you toward the blurry, slippery hole in reality that she's made. Let's give that a little space.
She drags you through a series of winding, beautiful tunnels. They're white-walled and lit with colors of light from unseen clerestory windows. Uh, invisible air currents. Nope, let's do subtle air currents smelling like flowers and water swirl around you and the architecture of the place reminds you of one of the great space stations, only underground. Plants have punched through the delicate walls and vaulting ceilings, letting nature run rampant in an oddly harmonious way with the civilization under your feet. What is this place? You ask Mercedes as you round yet another curving tunnel into what could have been some kind of mass transit station. Only part of the wall has fallen away, metamorphosing into a waterfall with charming purple and red flowers flowing down its sides from some unknown plant. It burbles into a river, cutting the station in half before flowing under the white stone-like material. Tree roots, instead of curving metal beams, vault overhead, and the stained glass windows seem long gone, replaced by open-air holes. Shrouded in vines and long-reaching plants flowering in the light. It might be the most lovely place you've ever seen. An odd, melancholy combination of destruction and rebirth, civilization and anarchy, nature and construct all molded into something melodious. Mercedes looks back at you with an expression of peaceful relaxation and calm. Welcome to the last Amazonian monastery. Formerly, this was the market station for the Sunyata family Senlen. I live here. Well, for a while anyway. Her expression goes thoughtful and sad. I used to, let's say, before corporate showed up. Anyway, her face relaxes again. Now that I live with you, we can just restore Hoshi, get rid of corporate, and go on galactic adventures. You pull your hand away from her and stare in disbelief, thinking for a minute she wants you like Hoshi. Uh, lady, I think you've got it all wrong. I mean... She waves you off, staring up at the ceiling. Relax, I'm not interested in sex. You and Hoshi are good together. I'm celibate anyway. I just miss having a family. Hoshi and I have a lot in common. And don't worry, I've seen all this happen. What? You're confused. Seen what happen? She gestures vaguely. This, talking, friendship, Hoshi, thing. I had a vision. Uh-huh. You say, immediately disinterested in patronizing. A vision. Right, from your god, I presume. You make it sound as derisive as possible. She frowns at you. No need to get all snippy. Yes, though temperance monks don't follow a god exactly. It's more of a, a lifestyle, I guess. Like a bunch of life coaches. You can hear the laughter in her voice as if she enjoys poking fun at herself and at your biased comments, as if the whole world was just absurd and funny. It makes you smile, too, before you remember that religion and faith were non-existent crutches for the week, and you wrestle your smile back and scowl, which seems to make it funnier for Mercedes, and she laughs harder, dragging you to still another beautiful room. Don't worry, Cass. Wisdom isn't catching. Even if it was, you've probably been vaccinated. You're not quick enough to respond. Mm -hmm. She finally stops. This room looks a lot like the other ones. There's some kind of tank-looking thing in one corner, a whitewashed table with inlaid metal and stones in the middle of the room, and a bunch of little waterfalls and pools making a wind chime effect as the water flows around the outside edge of the room. 
Unlike most of the other Sunyata rooms, this one didn't have any natural light. It was dark except for an odd dark blue bioluminescence in the water. As Mercedes turns on the artificial lights, you can see amber-gold globes bob to life and hover two to three feet from the ceiling, a dozen or so that move with the air currents, making you feel like you're underwater as well. She pulls a pouch from her well-worn bag hidden under the folds of cloth and shakes out what you recognize as Hoshi's skin flake regeneration fungus pouch. That's not right. Hey, you say, vaguely offended that she would have taken anything of Hoshi's. That's not... Relax, Cass. It's not his. It's mine. It's a Pontifex. How do you know he needs a pontifex? She taps the side of her head as if you're slow. He may not have a body, but he's perfectly capable of speaking, to those that can hear him anyway. You're not sure how you feel about that. There's a little storm of unhappiness in your chest at the thought. She pats your shoulder with a look of pity on her face. Relax, Cass. It takes a lot of work to talk to the ungifted. It's not that he didn't try or that he didn't want to. You sugar off. Doesn't matter. I mean, I don't care. She smiles a little and shakes her head, focusing on the pouch, and opens it to reveal... small, segmented compartments. She stares at it, and two of the compartments open without her touching it. You can see blue-white flecks and chunks of something bone-like mixing in the air as Mercedes delicately places them into the tank in the corner and flips a lever. With a rush, the waterfall noise intensifies, and dark blue water surges into the tank, thickening as it fills until it's a gel-like consistency shot through with chunks of white. Mercedes waits until the tank is full and completely gelatinous before swirling the muck a little with her mind and shutting down the lever. Two orbs settle on either side of her shoulders, as if perverse pets, and turn brilliant, eye-blinding white. You look away to clear the sparks from your eyes, and when you turn back, one globe has settled itself in the gunk, and the other has stationed itself over the tank and is gradually growing larger. You can't tell if it's a trick of the light, but you seem to think Mercedes has suddenly gotten much, much thinner, almost gaunt, and her skin seems almost yellow. She catches your notice and nods. Yep, I have to pay with my own energies, but it's cheaper and easier than those Evo shell production lines. Even Thiel would kill for how to build an organic shell without a couple billion credits and a whole biotech lab at their disposal. She winks at you. There, now you have one of my secrets. Don't tell anyone. Right, you whisper, impressed in spite of yourself. Damn right. Deal would kill for this kind of information. Hell, half the reason we invented snow was to... You abruptly cut that line of reasoning off and look at Mercedes to see if she's picked up on it. She just looks tired. 
You let out a tiny huff of relief that turns to stress again as she grabs Zubeda's rifle from you and flings it around her own shoulders. Piggyback, please, she says. What? I want piggybacks. I'm too tired to walk back to Shori. Carry me. Mercedes, you're like six feet tall. How am I supposed to carry you? Please, piggybacks. You roll your eyes and obediently turn your back to her so she can jump up. You settle her somewhere on your hip bones with a sigh. Fine, there. But can we just leave him like this? Mm, yes, time needs to grow before we can shove Hoshi in. And Hoshi has to be strong, really strong, or he won't materialize. You feel her head drop down onto your back and the deep, even sounds of sleeping. Sleep already? You shake her a little. Mercedes, Des, wake up. You have to help me get back up. Get back to Shori. No response. You look at the little droid. It's only good for following you and carrying things. You sigh and mentally trigger the little recording implant in your temple to help you retrace your steps back to Shori. Damn useless organics, always leaving us to do the cleanup, huh, buddy? You think it's your little servo. It doesn't respond, but Mercedes kicks you absently. Her breathing doesn't change, and it would be easy enough to think she was still asleep, but you know better. You huff and start your way back to Shori. Episode 11 Hoshi Jiro, you have to wake up. You hadn't realized you were in the dark until the voice came through. You realize you don't know how to wake up or what the voice wants. Jiro, open your eyes. Eyes? What eyes? But the voice, it's familiar. You know it. Mother. But the world is confusing. Everything around you is heavy and slow. You feel almost trapped. Mama? You ask in your head, like you've done a thousand times. What's going on? It's your first shell, Jiro. You remember? Today is your birthday. You get to have a body, Ji-chan. Try to relax. Can you feel it? No, you grumble. But now that she said that, you can start to feel that the heaviness has a pattern. It moves with your thoughts. For the first time, you feel confines around your spirit. You can feel things. Real things, not flows of energy. To your surprise, it's comforting. Experimentally, you take a deep breath and energy rushes in around your spirit, magnified and expanded like concentrated sunlight poured into you. It's warm and delicious. You take another deep breath. More light pours into you. Now you can feel the shape of arms and legs. You can lick your lips. You have lips. You can smell. Your skin prickles in excitement and you can feel it for the first time in your young life. You open your eyes and are surprised by how heavy they are. Good job, Ji-chan. Another deep breath for your mama, okay? You inhale again and your eyes feel less heavy. The familiar form of your mother is in front of you. She's holding you up in a pond or pool or something filled with water. You can feel it along your skin, deliciously cool and cleansing. You've seen her a thousand times before, but now, with the shell eyes, you can see not only her spirit, but the places where spirit meets shell body, lit with her own purple-blue energy signature. Mama, you say, 
tickled when your voice comes out, a real voice, not a mind voice, a proper little voice like hers, but higher and more musical. Mama, am I doing it right? You're doing great, baby. Another breath. Each time you breathe, you get stronger, okay? Breathe in and out like this. She's waded into the water with you and you can feel her hands along her, your sides, coaching your lungs to compress and expand and you follow the rhythm. Good, good. The shell should take over automatically in a few minutes, but just focus on taking energy in and out, just like that. As you get the hang of it, she curls you into her arms, making ripples in the pool that are intensely beautiful to your new eyes. You forget to breathe watching the water for a minute. You didn't know that the material realm was so pretty. Colors, shapes, sounds, everything floods you with sensations you've never experienced in the void. Can you see all right, Ji-Chen? Can you smell? Do you remember what other senses the shell has? Yes, Mama, you say, counting them off on your fingers. Sight, sound, touch, smell, taste, and energy collection. I can feel them all. You close your eyes and take a giant breath to fill yourself with prana, with the energy that all the sunyata use since it's an extension of their beings. I can feel it, Mama. It tastes like sunshine. She chuckles at your enthusiasm and gently leans your head back into the water, swishing back and forth to let you relax into the sounds and sensation of the waves. Good. Your spirit is turquoise, Ji-chan, just like your papa. You feel cool fingers trace along your jawline and firm up the mask. Perhaps you'll be a psychokinetic when your powers come in, just like him. Keep breathing, baby. Your body has to learn what it needs to do. Deep breaths. You scowl and are delighted by the experience of having a face that reflects your emotions. I'd rather be like you, you say. Who cares about moving stuff around? You can feel her sigh, but she doesn't stop moving you through the water. Precognition is not a very comfortable gift, Jiro. If I could, I would... Well, we shouldn't borrow trouble. I haven't been able to see what you'll grow into. Maybe it will be something kinder than precog. You're feeling restless. The gentle movements in the water suddenly don't feel relaxing. They feel confining. You struggle a little against your mother and she obligingly lets you down. Your feet land on the pool bottom and you realize you're much, much smaller than her. It annoys you. Mama, why did you make me so small? I want to be tall like you. Experimentally, you twist around so you can see your backside. And I want a tail like you. You made me look all squishy and small. Your mother kisses your forehead. Camouflage, my dear. We're far from home. You should look like the other boys and girls. Don't worry, I'm going to change my shell out as soon as you're ready to breathe on your own. She gives you a look that you don't understand. And you're going to help me. You need to know how to do this on your own so you can make a new shell by yourself, if you need to. She eyes you critically. Although that one should grow with you nicely for many years. Still, a shadow of something crosses her face, but you don't understand what the look means or what emotions do on faces. It feels odd to be in a body. In the void, you could feel everything directly all the time, especially from Mother. Now it feels like there's a wall between the two of you. It makes you feel lonely. Mama, what are you thinking right now? It feels strange to ask and strange to talk. Are you feeling something bad? No, baby, I'm not. 
but the words feel cold and metallic when everything should have been warm. It confuses you for a moment. But the intoxication of having your own body, finally, and getting to exist on the material plane is just too exciting, and you let the feeling slip away and splash around in the pool instead. Mm, that's not what I wanted to do. It's dark when the masked man come for you. It was hard to sleep at first with your new body, hard to get used to going back to the void when all the colors and sensations waited for you in the material realm, but Chiyoko promised that it would be there when you woke up. You went to sleep curled up with her, even though her shell was too hot. Move, you say. Trying to push her off the bed. You've gotten to sleep here for a whole year by yourself. Let me have a turn. But she'd ignored you and you'd been glad. You'd felt snuggled and warmed. When the big crash echoed in the hallway, neither of you had woken up. Mother shook both of you awake. Run, she'd said, and you'd been afraid because you've never seen that much of her energy leaking out of her shell before. Run, Chiyoko, you have to get to the port. Find Uncle Kiros. Find him. Make him take you with him. Big Sis nodded, and you could feel her arms get tight around you. Chito, your mother grabs your sister's shoulders to shake her a little. He doesn't know what you are. Don't let anyone know what you are. Another big crash came from the hallway, and Mother turns back to both of you. This time you can feel fear. Big fear. The kind of fear that overwhelms you flood over your mind. Run. You have to run. But you can't move. The pain and fear coming from the hallway is too big. Mother runs out of the room, and you can feel Chichan gather up your shell and make for the big window that leads toward the sea. But in a moment, the whole world gets tight and red. You can feel violence. You don't know what it is, but the pain of your mother and father snaps your mind out of the shell, away from Chiyoko, leaping down the window with you on her back, and throws you into the big sitting room in front of the home, in the front of the home. You can taste blood and something worse in your head. Unconsciously, you reach for your mother, joining with her mind like you never materialized and were still a baby. You see the vibroblade coming for her, and you can taste the chemicals on it. Chemicals that taste like death. <laughs> and a name. Wuxing. Mother, you try to warn her, but it's too late. The blade is buried in her shoulder. You can feel the poison leaching her from her shell. But worse, it's eating into her spirit energy. You can feel her dying, screaming in your head in agony as something dematerializes her. You scream with her until the link is broken and you're flung back into your shell and Chiyoko is holding her hand over your mouth. Quiet, Ji-chan. You have to be quiet. I have to find uncle. Please, please be quiet, okay? Just be quiet. You're crying. Heavy, fat tears are rolling down your face and you can't be quiet. Mama, mama's... But Chiyoko shushes you and pulls you into some kind of street or landing and wraps her arms around you, making you cry into her nightgown. Shh, gee, I know. Shh. But Mama, you gasp, still feeling her die in your head. We have to, we have to get to Uncle. You heard her. We have to get away, Jiro. You have to stop crying, okay? She looks around frantically. I don't know where we are, but I have to find Uncle. They're coming for us too, Jiro. You know that, right? You have to be quiet. 
You hiccup a little, but the thought of another knife coming for you makes you shut up and gulp. We're by the bookstore, you stutter out, pointing towards the distinctive curve of the Markovnikov shop. The station bends here and leads away from the residential areas towards the commerce district. It's one of the few places you can see into the black surrounding space. The rest of the station is covered with a mirror glaze, artificial sky, and radiation shields. But here, the exterior meets interior, and Markovnikov's books has a huge viewing platform you've used countless times. Even the dim ghost images you saw in the void were enough to let you know where you were. Chiyoko mutters something under her breath and drags you out of the shop's shadow and towards the station port. We have to go the long way, she says, a little out of breath as you try to keep up. You're not used to running and you keep tripping over your shell's feet and she has to catch you. You have a stab of loss for the void. We'll have to go around the ocean. Uncle is on the far end, I think. Maybe. Oh, I should have paid closer attention. The last part seems to be just for her, and you ignore it, trying to focus on breathing and not collapsing. Being physical is hard, you think, as Chiyoko speeds up, and you feel nothing but pain in your sides and something metallic and dry in your throat. You lose track of the station. At some point, you dimly feel the ground move underneath you, and you realize you're on the train. Chiyoko has pulled you back onto her back, and you can smell the spicy scent of her scales and feel her tail swishing underneath her pajamas. It reminds you of your mother, and you start to cry again. You can still hear her mind screaming as whatever it was burned through her soul. Chiyoko doesn't try to make you be quiet. This time of night, the station is reasonably peaceful, and no one seems to pay attention to two children. At some point, the train stops, and Chiyoko takes off at a run. You bounce uncomfortably, but are so tired that you find your head dropping onto her shoulder, starting to go to sleep. Suddenly she stops. There's a furious pounding noise. She says, Uncle Kiros. Bang, bang, bang. Uncle, is Hoshi Chiyoko. Please open up. Uncle, uncle. There's a sound of scraping. You see a couple lights flash on in the docking port as the ship dimly comes to life. Through your swollen and painful eyes, you see an old man stick his head out of the bay doors and peer at you and your sister. Hoshi, daughter, is that you? Another light comes on and the doors open all the way. A bent, wizened, brown-skinned man is staring at you and Chiyoko. You can feel a wave of curiosity, affection, and vague irritation flood from him towards Chiyoko and a sort of emptiness of thought towards you. You shy away from that emptiness. It reminds you of mother. Uncle, Chiyoko says in relief, please, something's happened to mother and father. We have to leave the station right away. Leave? Now, Hoshi daughter, that seems a little extreme, yeah? What's happened to your parents? Maybe I can... No, please. Mother said you would help us, that we had to run. Chiyoko glances behind her as if she could already see pursuers and shivers a little. Please help us, uncle. We have to leave right now. All right, all right, girl. No need to fuss. Come in, come in. I'll just send a message to your father that... No! The old man had been gently ushering you and Chiyoko into the ship and was closing the door when Chiyoko's adamant negative ricochets in the corridor. He gives her a surprised look. He stops giving her a surprised look. No, she says again, calmer. Mother said you would help us. Please, we need to leave right now. The old man nods and finishes closing the door but mutters, How your blessed mother could know that I would be here today? Well, I just got in this afternoon. Barely time to refuel, much less take care of a pair of youngsters. 
Hey, La Hoshi daughter, who is this boy you're carrying? You feel the old man peer at you as he shuffles behind Chiyoko towards the control center of the ship. A friend of yours? My, my cousin, Chiyoko falters. Your cousin is a human? Strange family, the Hoshis, he says mostly to himself. Never heard of a Saurian taking a human mate. Most unusual. <laughs> Please, says Chiyoko, urging the old man toward the pilot station. You can hear the exasperation and exhaustion in her voice. We need to go. Now, now, girl, all things happen when they need to happen. Your parents, can we send help to them? Where are they? I don't know, wails Chiyoko. Mama just told me to get Jiro, go to you, and get off the station. Hmm, boy's name is Jiro, then. The old man grabs your chin and turns your face to the light. At his touch, you feel a wash of kindness, compassion, comfort that makes more tears pour down your face. Oh, dear. Oh, there, there, boy. You feel a comforting pat on your back. What happened to your honored parents, then? Your aunt, your uncle. Do you remember? The... They're dead, you choke out, hearing your mother screaming again. You don't think you'll ever be able to get the sound out of your head. Um... You clamp your hands over your ears and scream, they're dead, as loud as you can, as if it will banish their ghosts. Another gentle pat. This time the old man stays on your head and smooths your hair. Oh, all right, boy. Deep breaths. Let all that pain out. That's a good boy. Chiyoko, is the boy right? Your parents run into some trouble? You dissolve back into miserable sobbing, feeling the calming stroke of the man's hand actually starting to ease all the hot ball of suffering lodged somewhere in your chest. You can feel Chiyoko nod. Yes, sir, she whispers, and you can feel a wave of her grief and anguish spiral through you. It burns. The man turns away from you both and settles into the pilot's chair with a sigh. No good. That's not right planetary survey crew like the Hoshis. Who could mean them any harm? Finest pilots in 12 systems. Ain't no one want to kill the Hoshis, he mutters to himself. But you feel Chiyoko's balance shift as the ship starts to power up, and you hear the man radio the station master for launch clearance, and you feel an overwhelming surge of relief at getting away from the blood and the screaming. Chiyoko puts you down on the deck and crouches next to you and curls her body over yours protectively. You can feel her crying, and the hot flood of tears and grief seeps into your brain. Chi-chan, you ask her, reaching out with cautious mental fingers to brush against her mind timidly. Chi-chan, they're gone. I felt Mama die. Felt it in my head. I was with her. Chiyoko doesn't say anything, just holds you tighter, but you can feel her sadness mirror your own, and it makes your skin hurt. <laughs> Kiros Phoenix is a kind man. You know that every second of every day. But he's old and poor and easily confused. It's been three days since it happened, and Uncle Kiros has made good on whatever promises he made to your mother and father. You're still too young to understand most of what goes on or what he does for a living, but Chiyoko knows, and it makes her lip go tight and flat with disapproval. But you both have plenty to eat, and Uncle tells you stories that can distract you sometimes. You're safe, cared for. 
Every time you touch the old man, you can feel nothing but genuine good wishes and kindness for both you and Chiyoko, but you still can't speak. It's as if something tore out your vocal cords when you last screamed and you're trapped in silence. Here now, Hoshi boy, you have to eat a little bit, yeah? Just a little bit. Kiros hands you flatbread with something buttery. The thought of eating is revolting to you. Mama didn't have time to teach you how to do it. You look at Chiyoko. She mimes opening her mouth, makes chewing motions, and swallows dramatically to show you what to do. You take the bread and take a bite. It's like glue. The taste is so bland you're not sure if your shell's taste sensors have malfunctioned, but you follow along with Chiyoko's chewing and swallow obediently. As soon as you do, there's a satisfying rush of gold-purple energy that floods through your system, and you feel a little better. You take another bite, and another. The gold-purple light seems to be filling up holes in your soul, and your despair eases slightly. The old man looks pleased with himself. Good boy, he says, patting you. You eat that and sleep a little, and you'll feel better. He gives you a kind look. Nothing can take the grief away, but a little food can ease some suffering. Eat. He shoves another piece of bread at you. Good, good. Hoshi children are eating and sleeping, finally. Yes, yes. Hoshi daughter, your parents come from Sadea Station before this one, right? They were working for Thiel? Is that right? We should go ahead and notify the local peacekeeper that one of their ships was... No... Chiyoko chokes a little on her meal and gasps. No, mother said we can't tell anyone. Kiros frowns. No one. But girl, we have to tell someone that there was murder. I, I understand not telling anyone on Tyra, but we have to start an investigation. Chiyoko looks down, confused. But Kiros pats her comfortingly. Now, don't you worry. Theo will take good care of you and the boy, and they'll find out who did this to your parents tight-run company, Thiel. You work for them, you've got a job for life. More like a family. He sits back into his chair, content with the plan. Sure, maybe the Tyra station had some bad eggs, but no one gets over on Thiel and gets away with it. You'll see, Hoshi daughter. They'll fix this whole mess. We'll stop over at Sadia and sort this whole thing out. You'll see. You see Chiyoko swallow and, mates, and the same shadow you saw on your mother's face on your birthday flits across hers. It makes a hole in your stomach open up. Chiyoko, what is it? Hush, she replies back. I'm going to try to see. See like mama? Yes. You feel her shove you out of her mind. Go away. I have to concentrate. And keep uncle from bothering us for a couple hours. Okay, you say. But you feel oddly bereft and cold. How am I supposed to do that? She gives you an exasperated glance and stands up, moving towards her bunk. I don't know. Figure something out, little brother. You're so useless. Sorry, you try to say, but she's thrown up her walls and you can't talk to her anymore. You go back to poking at the bread, but a lump has developed in your throat and you suddenly can't swallow.
Uncle Kiros opens the docking bay doors and you and Chiyoko step out into Sadia. Sadia Station. You grab her hand and stay close to her as Uncle fusses with the ship locks and chats with the port technicians for what seems like a really long time. There are too many confusing emotions and sensations around you. You shrink closer into Chiyoko and try to make yourself smaller. She shoves you a little. Stand up, brother. Don't be such a baby. We have to be grown up now that Mama and Papa are gone. But you don't feel grown up. You feel overwhelmed and terrified all the time. Kiros brays out a big laugh that feels fake at something the text says and motions to you and Chiyoko. Come, come, Hoshi children. Mr. Joyce here says that Thiel is up on level two, so we'll need to go for a walk. Hoshi daughter, hold my hand. Hoshi? Joyce's ears seem to perk up at the name. Hoshi like the surveyors? The Fujian pilots? Are they here? He looks back towards Kiros's ship. Oh, no, no. Uncle Kiros is babysitting for Hoshi daughter and Hoshi cousin. <laughs> Jiro today, says Kiros with another hearty, fake laugh. The parents are tied up at Tyra, need me to check on a couple things with the company and couldn't watch the children themselves. Ah, says Joyce, but you feel something dark and sick crawling around in his mind. Without thinking, you reach up to touch his hand briefly. Guilt, anxiousness, betrayal, and something hot and sticky that you can't recognize as an emotion floods into you. You snatch your hand back and Chiyoko smacks your palm. Stop that, she says, glaring at you. Don't draw attention to yourself. Never let them know what you are. Joyce's eyes have gone intense and he's staring at you watching the exchange. You draw yourself in small behind Chiyoko as she tightens her grip on Kiros's hands. Kids, huh? Kiros says, tugging both of you forward and towards the corridor that would lead to Sadia Station proper. Thank you, Joyce. We'll see you in a few hours. Come along, children. Places to go, people to see. You can't get the feel of that hot, sticky emotion out of your mind, and you compulsively wipe your hand on your clothes. It reminds you of how the vibroblade felt right, right before, but you stop that thought before it can make you go cold again. Kiros leads you and Chiyoko through a maze of sensations. It's too much for you. The constant bombardment of feelings and sensory experiences on station makes you sick, and you clutch Chiyoko's hand like it'll wash you away like a wave. With the other hand, you shove against your forehead and ear as if it will stop the constant input. Chiyoko yanks you forward periodically as you stop, drowning all the people's emotions and body feelings. Finally, she drags you up to sit piggyback on her hips. What is wrong with you, she mind hisses in annoyance. I told you not to draw attention to yourself. Sorry, you try to say, but Sadia is much larger than Tyra and your shell is shoving at you energy faster than you can use it and the most peculiar feeling is happening in your head. It almost itches, or, or burns, maybe. And the sensation is getting worse the longer it goes. Finally, Kiros turns into a lift. You watch the station levels disappear underneath the glass panes as the lift goes higher and higher, and it opens into a giant aquarium. For a moment, you're completely distracted and enthralled. The whole section is underwater, with glass on every side except the floor. You can see fish, sharks, corals, a whole undersea experience just beyond the glass. You wriggle off Chiyoko's back to press your face up against the glass and breathe it in, burning brain forgotten. 
Kiros moves to grab your hand and drag you away, but a woman dressed in a business attire, black and forbidding, stops him. There's no need. The boy is fine where he's at, she says, smiling at Kiros. It makes you feel cold. Please feel free to continue your business with the intake manager. I'll be happy to keep an eye on your grandson here. Ah, Hoshi boy is not my grandson, though he does seem to enjoy your aquarium. You feel unease and anxiousness from the normally relaxed Kiros. It makes you look at him in surprise. You feel nothing from the woman but a wave of cold. You take a step back and bump into the aquarium walls. She turns her smile to you, and all you see are white, white teeth. Well, thank you, miss, but, um, Kiro says as if waiting for some sign from you that you want to stay or leave with him. It's no trouble, she says, not breaking eye contact with you. Hoshi and I will do well to get acquainted. Don't you think, Hoshi? You look up at Kiro's helplessly, but he shrugs. You still can't talk. The words won't come. You want to tell him not to leave you and that you want to go with him, but the woman is now standing in front of you, and Chiyoko is standing awkwardly with the intake manager, waiting for Kiros, and the old man turns away to follow them deeper into the building. The woman watches them leave and then turns back to you, still smiling. She runs her hand along the length of your jaw, where the seams haven't quite grown together yet. It's subtle, but she finds them, and the shock of being touched like that makes you recoil. There's a wave of that sticky, hot emotion again, and something that makes your insides feel liquefied. The combination of unfamiliar emotions makes you shiver a little and you feel the shell break out in a sweat. The woman seems to be as surprised as you when it happens, though, and she peers more closely at you. Well, Hoshi, is that your name? She asks you, kneeling in front of you so she can look into your eyes. You don't say anything. Hoshi. She rolls the sound of your family on her lips and for some reason it makes you angry, deeply angry. You're not at all what we expected, you know. She draws her fingers down your face again. And you're just a baby, I see. Barely materialized, but very strong. Much stronger than your sister, aren't you? Is this your first shell? She's touching your clothes and gripping one hand, and those unfamiliar feelings are bombarding you, making it hard to think. You're fairly sure they're all coming from her. Whatever they are, they are strong. She licks her lips. You're going to be beautiful when you grow up a little. Did your mother make you this shell? She sighs and places her hand against your heart. I liked your mother. Terrible shame. She looks at you as you say it, and suddenly you understand what those emotions are. Not in words, but they are the same as the bloodlust and violence you felt when someone killed your father, and there were echoes of the same feelings in your mother's death scream. This woman, or someone like her, killed your family. She knows it and she wants you to know it and to suffer. The emotional pressure erupts and you go berserk. As if that thought had summoned her, Chiyoko and Kiros simultaneously erupt out of the other room at the same time you place both hands over your ears and shove all that emotion back at the woman. Her back bends almost in half in pain and her mouth opens in a soundless scream, but she doesn't let you go. All that hot energy and the burning feeling in your brain coalesces for a moment on her hands. You grip them and let your mother's scream echo in your head again. This time, you can see the tendons, muscles, nerves leading all the way to the woman's spinal cord, heart, and brain. Without thinking, you shove that scream and all the death energy up into that path, letting it burn out her spiral cord. You feel her die, just like your mother. 
For a moment, your brain is burning, your spinal cord is molten lava, and you're dying just like her, dying with her. And all you can do is scream and scream and scream until your voice dies and strong hands yank you up and start running towards the exit. Dimly, you can see something still alive in the room. It's Chiyoko. Someone is holding her back. No, many someones. And sharp pops glance off you and Kiros as he runs towards the exit and the ship. No, you scream again, finding the strength from somewhere as you watch Chiyoko being dragged away from you over the remains of the woman you liquefied. Your hands reach out to your sister in helplessness even as she reaches back for you. You can see her mouth move, but nothing comes out. Nothing but a wall of terror from her. Chichan, Chiyoko. You wrench the energies through your shell back into the room, even as Kiros is carrying you away from her, and savagely twist those energies through the spinal cords of two of the creatures holding Chiyoko. You feel them convulse as you tear the life energies out of them, feel their spines breaking as if they were your own, and the shock of the pain is enough to drive you unconscious and limp in Kiros's arms. You can see the pattern of the old man's bones in your head. The image of the damage from whatever punched through him seems superimposed on your own body somehow. Kiros is conscious, and you can tell he's in pain, but worse, you can smell something that reminds you of your mother, sickly sweet, the smell on her breath when she came to get you and Chiyoko a million years ago, musty and sugary all at the same time. It makes you gag a little, but the smell stays with you. He's dying, you think to yourself, without knowing how you know. You blink, and the image of his muscles, bones, and nerves are laid out against your corneas. Not the fake ones in the body your mother made you, but the real ones made out of light now trapped behind the human mask. For the first time, you can see the light around Kiros, the same light you remember from your childhood, before you materialized. But even as you watch, it starts to dim and flow out towards the void. Without thinking, you reach out and catch it, a tiny river of light trapped in your tiny hands. You bring it back towards Kiros's body, but it won't stay put and it won't go back in. Tears start to form at the corners of your eyes as you keep trying to shove the light back in and the sugar smell gets stronger. You don't know what to do. Through the human mass tears, you look around desperately for something in the ship, something to tell you what to do, but the instruments are cold and you can't feel anything from them. Around you and Kiros is just the emptiness of whatever he's hid you both in, hiding, hiding from Thiel, hiding from Wuxing, An image of your mother flashes in your mind's eye again as she tells you to hide. You can't help it. You reach out in your mind just like you did as a baby, searching for the silver cord that always tied you to her. Mama, you try to call, but the cord is severed and there's nothing but emptiness in the void. It makes you cry harder. You're in pain, a lot of pain, more pain than you've ever felt before, in fact. You realize it's not your grief or even fear, it's something more. When you look down, the same kind of cord that used to be your lifeline to your mother is now tied into Kiros, only it's different, muddy, not the clean silver of hers, and instead of a tie, it seems to be some kind of channel, one way from you to Kiros. You watch your own light flow down it into his body, pooling into the gaping hole that had been his chest muscles. You touch your own left chest. When you do, you see the light abruptly flare, and instead of pooling, floods your chest with the images of Kiros's internal organs, nerves, lungs, everything. The hole is now in your chest. It's killing you. You're drowning in the smell of death. 
You can't see or hear or feel anything but the red-hot magma of Kiros's wound burying itself deeper and deeper into you. There's light everywhere, like falling into the heart of a sun. For an instant, you feel yourself burning up, letting the heat take you, almost in relief, before something in your psyche snaps you back. Anger, dark and bitter, shoves the light down, and you focus it on the hole in your heart, the one pulsing now with red-black energy, the one eating your life force and generating this wall of pain. You shove your anger and all the teal-green light around you into the hole, filling in the difference with muscles, nerves, and bone. All the things from the images burned into your sight, you lay down as a template on your own chest and flood it with all the energy swirling around you until the hole is gone, the rage is gone, the sight vanishes, and there's nothing but pain and exhaustion giving you little gasps as you stare up at the ceiling of Kiros's ship. After a moment, you can see Kiros is now staring down at you. His brown weathered face fills up your vision. He looks younger somehow, but that can't be right. You close your eyes and feel his hand rest lightly on your forehead, and, as if the touch opens some kind of door, suddenly you feel amazement, greed, shock, exhilaration all rush into you. Thoughts, too, though these are harder to hear through the maelstrom of feelings echo in your head, just like mothers used to. The boy's a biopsionic and so strong, how? You shy away from the images and the thoughts, trying in vain to move his hand off you, you can feel that he's just trying to see if you're alive and conscious, but there's something wrong. He wants you. He wants you to do things. You don't know the names for the feelings he's generating, but they feel like the feel woman's. They feel wrong, threatening, and frightening. You're so tired, though, and his hand is so heavy. Finally, you manage to remember that you can talk. Please, you whisper, pushing at his hand weakly. Please don't touch me. It hurts. Kiros's hand immediately disappears, and you can breathe better. His feelings are still all around you, but not as intense, and you stop hearing his thoughts. Hoshi boy, are you all right? What did you do to me? The words weren't accusatory, and you feel nothing but curiosity coming from him now, and you let out a sigh in relief. I don't know, you say honestly, trying to sit up, but getting so nauseated you lie back heavily and keep your eyes closed. I... You healed me, Hoshi. I didn't know you were a biopsionic. That's amazing. You can feel Kiros moving as if to touch you again, and you shy away. No, you say weakly, trying to keep him away from you, but he scoops you up and hugs you tightly to him. The same wash of slimy feelings pour over you, and it makes you sicker. Hoshi, this is great news! Great news! No wonder Theo wanted you and your sister. Can Hoshi daughter do this as well? Never mind, never mind. Do you know how rare you are? A real life biopsionic. On my ship! Mine! This is great news, Hoshi. Great news! There's another flood of the slime into your mind, and you throw up all over Kiros in response, keeping your eyes firmly shut. The sickness seems worse the more you look at him, and the more physical contact you have, but he doesn't seem to mind. There, there, little Biogen. Of course you must be tuckered out. Don't you worry. Not to worry. Uncle Kiros is here. Things are going to be so much better now. You'll see. You're too tired to resist, even in some, as something in you screams to run away. And anyway, where would you go? Kiros doesn't seem to notice, humming to himself as he takes you towards the cleaning room, already starting to swip, strip off your soiled clothes. It's dark in the void. You forgot how much light bodies had, and how that light was always comforting even when it did terrible things to you. 
Strange, you think, floating in a sea of blackness. Strange that I don't come here more often. It's so quiet. You're so alone, and it's wonderful. No emotions, no needs, no pain, no selfishness. Nothing but you floating in the dark. It's refreshing. Almost. Something is leeching part of you, like bleeding from an open wound. But you don't have, a blo have blood or a body now, evidently. You turn over memories as they show up in your mind one by one. You haven't remembered your mother in a long time or the day you lost Chiyoko. You don't have often come back to those, but you don't seem to be in control now if you ever were. The void drifts through you like the ocean, pulling driftwood of your past in front of your sight. But here it doesn't hurt, alone and very safe. But the pull is too strong. You know that leech is killing you, but here, cradled in the dark, you're not really sure you care. It'd be a relief, not a punishment, to die here, so you drift. At some point, you're not sure when, mostly because time doesn't really matter, you notice you're not alone. There's a feeling of other, a presence, both familiar and very, very strange. It's unexpected enough that it makes you blink awake out of the relaxed stupor you've been floating in. When you open your eyes, you see a young woman, her outline in silver copper light hovering in the darkness with you. She's looking down. As if reading something on her lap, her feet seem to be braced on something invisible, but the strong, clear silver outlines of her void form are very soothing. But you don't want to see her. You don't want to feel what she's feeling. For a moment, you resent someone else in the darkness with you, all that pain, all that need infringing on your blessed silence. But, to your surprise, you don't feel anything from her. And not in the bad way, not as if her soul has died or she'd burned out part of herself. It wasn't the quiet of despair, abuse, or neglect. It was just quiet. You drift closer. She doesn't acknowledge you, but as you drift to her side, the void changes. She takes the darkness and wraps it into a living forest. Suddenly, you and her are in a treehouse, high above the forest floor. A giant tree, sprawling hundreds of feet up in the air and below your feet with only a slim winding ramp from the ground. Rope bridges connect to other giant trees off in the distance. This house wraps around you with warm lanterns and the sound of rain on the wall-length windows that shiver slightly in a storm's breeze. The air smells like wood and rain, and you inhale deeply, realizing that she's given you a body in this void. In this void. Visualization. You have a form again. It feels like a blanket around your shoulders. The woman hands you something hot and sweet and steaming, and you realize you're sitting in a comfortable chair surrounded by books. She drapes an actual blanket over you as you take the mug. Hello, she says. Words. You haven't heard words in a very, very long time. You haven't spoken in a very, very long time. Hello, you think back at her. She smiles at you. Would you like to read something? You look around at the books covering the wooden walls from floor to ceiling, twisting around the giant tree trunk in the center of the room and seeming to grow off the branches spanning the floor and joints. 
What would I read, you ask? None of the books have titles you can see. She shrugs, and a single red-bound book with a leaf on the cover falls out onto the table between you. Whatever you'd like. If you don't like this life's memories, I have others. She motions to the other trees tied together with rope bridges. I've lived many, many lives. There are some good stories here. Oh, this is your soulscape. Your memories? You remember your mother used to stay with you like this before you materialized. It's very comforting. You settle deeper into the chair, inarticulately soothed by the familiarity. Your Sunyata? You're surprised. She doesn't feel like one of the void people. She actually feels very human. I'm not Sunyata. Wuxing. But yes, she gives the soulscape a little wave. I thought you might feel more comfortable meeting me this way. She gives you a happy, innocent smile. I'm a new friend, though you don't know that yet. And... You like her immediately. When you stretch out with your senses, you can't feel any pain from her, just light. Well-controlled, disciplined light that welcomes your mental touch, but keeps you and her separate. You reach out a hand instead, and she immediately grips it to press against your cheek. You feel energy wrap around you, penetrate your skin, and something empty in you starts to fill. There's no lust, no greed, no hope, nothing, just quiet light pouring around you. You've never met anyone that didn't take the light from you, much less someone who gave it back or who let you be alone. Something in you starts to relax for the first time since your mother died. You lean out of the chair to sit at the woman's feet. And lay your head on her knees. She strokes her hand through your hair, and you let out a sigh of relief and close your eyes, wallowing in the sensation of comfort. This is very kind of you. Not many humans would be able to think of something like this, you say. At least, not without wanting me to do something for it. Usually sex. But I can't feel anything from you. What are you? A metapsionic. Like you... We are brother and sister, you and me. I thought you might need a little help coming back to the world. Your body is almost ungrowing. My body? You're confused for a moment. Oh, right. I don't exist yet. But it's nice just to be here for a while. You like feeling her calm quiet all around. I don't want to go back yet. You don't have to. You've had a hard road, she agrees. My gift isn't nearly as strong as yours, thank goodness, but then people have been nicer to me than they've been to you. I haven't had to use it as much. People. You can't sigh mentally, but the thought of being around the press of people again just makes you tired. Maybe I won't go back this time, you say, hoping to hear her tell you that you have to. Maybe you won't, she agrees, and then falls silent.
You don't have to. I can send you home if that's what you really want. There's another pause. Kaz is an interesting person. The hunter says, breaking into the silence. Very conflicted, very caring. Lots of emotion buried in layers with that one. You don't say anything, but you can feel a restlessness in your heart at Cass's name. Hatred, maybe? Need? Frustration? Hope? At the thought, you can see another chord spark into existence, leading out away from the forest, back, presumably, to Kaz. The girl watches the chord stretch out into the void with you. Very interesting person. You and Kaz have a number of things in common, I think. We have nothing in common, you grouse, and lever yourself off her lap to slink back into the chair, peace broken. Oh, I think you're going to be surprised, says the woman. I think Chiyoko will be surprised to see you as well. You start, calm now, is completely dispersed. Chiyoko? How do you know about Chiyoko? Have you been spying on me? The hunter shakes her head. You were in so much pain, you were broadcasting to anyone who would listen. You didn't have enough energy or self even to make it coherent. Just mindless pain and raw memories floating around. You frown and open your mouth as if to argue with her. She pats you. Now don't worry. I sent Cass to, off to play with Shori, so it's just you and me in the world. No one else can get hurt. She catches a look of the confusion of emotions that may be playing on your face. Kaz won't know anything until you talk about it. Or don't, she says, shrugging a little. But you may be surprised. Kaz has layers, more than even you've seen. Layers of anger and insecurity, maybe. Layers of bullshit and self-delusion, sure. Burke's just a parfait of layers, you grump. Which makes the woman laugh. The irony of that may be lost on you right now, old man, but I'm sure that this will be hilarious when you're not quite so ephemeral. You narrow your eyes at the woman. You feel like you're being manipulated somehow, but you can't read her and it makes you nervous. You made me a body? Mm-hmm. Kaz helped. A Pontifax shell. I'm just helping it along a little bit. Are you sure you're not a Sunyata? You ask in disbelief. How many other cultures can just grow new bodies and build soulscapes and talk about other lifetimes in the void without breaking a sweat? She vaporizes her image in the soulscape, liquefying it, spiraling it out until it resembles nothing more than smoke caught in rings of air and twines through your arms, legs, hair, skin. I'm a temperance monk, among other things, she says, and a good one. I don't know what that is, you say, trying to follow the motion of the smoke around you until the patterns are so confused between wood and you and leaves, you can't tell where any of it starts and stops. I know. Don't worry, you're about to find out. It's time to wake up, Jiro. Wake up.
Episode 12. It's been well over a week, maybe two, or three. Time all flows together, and frankly, you're not in too much of a hurry to make it stay put. Mercedes assures you that no one can find you here in the monastery, and that even your frequent visits to the ship won't go noticed. She's chewing on some kind of candy, reading something that looks like a paper product. Magazine, you think was the name. You've never seen print media before. Her long legs are braced up against one of the pure white walls, and she doesn't even bother to look at you to answer your question. Go ahead, Cass. No one's going to care about you scavenging that mercenary runabout, or going out to Shori. The nearest city is about 20 miles in the wrong direction through jungle and bad choices, and corporate already went through this area. <clears throat> or so they think. She shrugs and pops the candy out of her mouth. No one gives a damn, dear heart. Go play with your engines. You scowl at her. She doesn't seem to notice, smiling sweetly back. It reminds you of Hoshi, which immediately pisses you off. For reasons. I'm going to have to make several trips. I don't think you understand the situation here, Des. I'm going to be cannibalizing parts and installing an engine in Shori, and it's just going to make noise and draw attention. Are you sure there isn't somewhere better I can do that? She shrugs and looks back to her reading. Do whatever you want. I'm not going to stop you. But I can tell you, the only things out in the jungle are things that want to be left alone. She stops as if something just occurred to her. Kaz, are you scared? She drops the paper in her feet to cock her head and look at you, deeply, absorbedly. It's very disconcerting. You drop your eyes. No, of course I'm not scared. What would I have to be scared about? You flex your rifle off your shoulder enough to give it emphasis. I have Zubeda here. It's not like I can't take care of myself. But you don't admit that your implants seem to be behaving oddly in this atmosphere, and you have the worst creeping sense of doom that just seems to lurk constantly in your heart. As if she's heard you, Mercedes smiles at you and puts a, friend, a hand directly on your chest, staring at her own fingers as if they were something other than her body. I see, she says. Kaz, Hoshi is going to be fine. I'm here. His new body is growing nicely. He's starting to absorb energy again. She looks over to the blue-green mash of mist pooled in what might have been a fountain under the clerestory window sunlight. You don't have to worry. I'm not worried. Who's worried? You scoff, or try to, but it comes out all sticky and you feel like an asshole for even saying the words. Uh-huh, is all she says, pulling her hand away from your heart and going back to her reading. Whatever you say, Kaz, Hoshi and I will be fine here. Go play with your toys. We'll get along all right by ourselves. She gives you a sidelong look. Or is that what you're afraid of? That I'll steal your Hoshi. Don't be ridiculous, you grump, grabbing your pack and storming out towards the exit. My Hoshi, my ass. She bursts out into delighted laughter as you book it out of the monastery towards Shori. At least Shori will be glad to see me, you think, delicately disengaging the holographic projector Mercedes had set up for you at the doorway to the monastery and easing your way into the thick jungle air. It always felt a little like drowning before your lungs caught up to the increased humidity levels and your implant sensors adjusted to the new homeostatic norms. It was decidedly unpleasant. Organics are disgusting, you think per usual, as you encounter the normal smells of decomposition, fecal matter, stagnant water, and other living systems. Nature is highly overrated. You're proud that the calls of wildlife only startle you a few times now, and you only grab Zubeda once out of pure panic when something winged lurches out of the trees at you. This is progress. Once at the mercenary ship, you pull out your trusty foldable servo, shake it out onto the jungle floor. The thing unfolds into its four-legged dog-like self and waits for instruction. 
You gently tug its head to you, unfurling the tiny nanofilament data jack from your finger and inserting it into the server's port, downloading the programming you'd spent the morning putting together in your memory drives. This should be the last trip. With the mercenary atmospheric thruster systems, master control panel, and energy conversion package, you're planning on making the final install of the non-biological propulsion systems in the next few days, which should be easy enough, provided Shori is less stubborn than Hoshi and actually lets me do my damn job, you think in annoyance, as you start removing systems and placing them in the servo's cargo carry-all. Its front little paws are wrist-deep in the engine compartment, disengaging the reactor core for you, since the radiation would melt your skin. Shame that I'm not fully cybernetic, but the world is an imperfect place. Besides, Hoshi doesn't seem to mind a little skin. The thought makes you blush, surprised at yourself, before you mercilessly shut down that thinking and focus on the complicated work of demolition and installation before you. Places to go and things to do, you think, as you and the servo finish cutting out the parts and make your way to Shori. I hope Hoshi likes what we've done with the place. <laughs> you lose track of time. Shori is patient and very cooperative, which surprises you. Even in the interface, she treats you gently and seems to take special care not to overwhelm you with too much information. The ion drive and thruster system is completely antithetical to her nature, and you're pretty sure you're hurting her. But she only flashes responses on the screen, and all you feel from her computing system is a general sense of welcome and belonging. She doesn't complain when you reinforce her bones with nanosteel braided tubules, that you grew in the med bay, and doesn't fuss when you have to reroute part of her neural network to link the mechanical power of the engines. She tells you that your implants look like they've integrated nicely with your biology, and that she'll trust you to do just as nice a job. You're strangely touched by the vulnerability, and you notice that you're much more gentle than usual with your work, even asking her if the soldering and bone fusions are causing any pain. It's a level of kindness you didn't expect from yourself, at least not since your days in the lab, but that was a long time ago. You're perfectly focused. Your mind is completely clear and completely present in your activities. Later, you'll realize that you haven't felt that calm and disciplined without snow, well, ever. Later, you'll remember that you forgot to eat and sleep and that your body and workstations are total messes. Later, you'll be grumpy and sore and not want to admit that you want to be cuddled, pampered, and spoiled as a reward for some of the best work you've ever done. But since that would require admitting you needed anything from anyone, you'll repress that feeling and then feel neglected when Hoshi doesn't lavish praise on you. You're a complicated person. But for now, all that exists is the work, the steady coaxing into existence of what had been dead, lifeless plans into the living work of art that was a fully integrated navigational and propulsion system. You're patient and methodical, testing each component multiple times, integrating each section bit by bit, hunting down problems with a kind of implacable gentleness and selfless attention that is the reason you became an engineer in the first place. Oops. You were created in the first place. Nothing exists but the shape of Shori in your hands as you mold her into something stronger and faster, more unique and individual than she could be on her own. ironically enough. The design grows organically as you see her and the upgrades in holistic context and augment each synergistically with the other. It's beautiful and utterly engrossing. At the end, with the final test run completed and the final adjustments made, you stand in Shori's control one. Oops. 
You stand in Shory's control center, watching the new computer manual interface light up. Shory's thoughts delicately touch yours in a tiny shiver of gratitude and delight that makes the odd melancholy echo in your heart shimmer just for a second. It's a moment of profound intimacy and alienation all at once to know that only you and she know how beautiful she is and what it took to bring her to this point. It makes you proud and empty all at once. Maybe this is what being a parent is like, you think, briefly, as Shori lightly sets back down onto the jungle on her own, effortlessly integrating her new thrusters into the thick atmosphere and unfurling her wings for a long power soak. You can feel her contentment and relaxation as if they're your own, and you have a brief spurt of fear that maybe she's too close, that maybe you gave up too much of yourself for this project, for Hoshi. But you quickly shove that out of the way, stretch, and expediently pass out in your bunk from sheer exhaustion for the effort. Hoshi looks like a bucket of teal slop. You look at Mercedes, holding said bucket, and at the tank that is so thick with slime and muck that you can't see if the shell is actually done or not. You look back at Mercedes. This is dumb. It's not dumb, Cass. You just don't understand it. The one is not actually connected to the other, regardless of your personal biases, she says, lifting the Hoshi slop bucket up to the top of the tank and pouring him in. Something in you revolts at the image. It's just too alien. You roll your eyes and cross your arms in front of your chest and try to ignore the gnawing, aching, reaching from your sternum to your spine. What if this doesn't work? What if Hoshi's actually dead? What if Mercedes gives you a droll look? Please stop freaking out. I can hear you worrying. Hoshi's fine. He and I had a nice chat. He's awake and ready to materialize again. You don't even bother to hide your skepticism. You had a nice chat with Hoshi. With what, Des? Hoshi doesn't exist. Look at him. You gesture to the slot bucket she's gently and slowly pouring into the muck tank. He's a mist, not a person. And I don't know about you, but the last time I had discourse with something in a gaseous state, it didn't exactly hold up its part of the conversation. And that filth, you stab your chin towards the muck in the tank. Is there a body in there? I don't know, because you won't let me dig it out and see if it's chemically and structurally sound. So from my point of view, and hear me out here, you're just dumping colored air into an aquarium gone sour. You huff out of breath. Hoshi's fucked. I'm fucked. This whole thing is fucked. You sit down hard against the wall behind you and lean your head against your knees. What are we even doing here, Des? Oh man, you get riled up over the weirdest things, Mercedes says, chuckling to herself. Still pouring Hoshi, or whatever's left to him, into the tank. Such a sensitive creature for all your fuss. Relax, Cass. Hoshi's fine. And try to keep your thoughts to yourself for a minute. Mama's working here, and Hoshi will need a little help finding his way back. You throw up your hands in disgust. Back from where, you crazy woman? He didn't go anywhere. He's in a goddamn bucket, for Christ's sakes. Shh. She bites back at you. Just sit there and think happy thoughts. Hmm. Actually, Hoshi's more of a feelings guy. So why don't you just there, sit there and think about how much you love him and how much you miss him if he wasn't here? You bristle. I don't love him. And don't tell me what to do. He's not going to feel himself out of that tank. Of course, dear. Whatever you say. It's obvious she isn't paying any attention to you now, her whole being clearly attuned to whatever was happening in front of her. Crazy mambo-jumbo-voodoo bullshit, you think. See, this is the problem with organics. Nothing but mysticism and nonsense, killing perfectly good brain cells. 
You try not to notice that the light in the room seems to be getting stronger and turning a very distinct electric blue. And you try to ignore a feeling of growing joy, intoxicating sensuality, and freedom that seems to be bubbling up from somewhere near your solar plexus. They aren't feelings you've felt before, and you feel almost lightheaded from the sheer joy of whatever was going on. There was no more Hoshi in the bucket. Mercedes drops it and reaches into the slime and muck up to her elbows. Even as a tall woman, she has to stand on tiptoes to reach deep enough into whatever it was to get a hold on the presumed body. The light around her seems to intensify. For a moment, you can almost see slivers of silver outlines highlighting her body against the tank, but the slivers slip away before you can actually clarify them in your brain. Something is happening. Without conscious thought or even being aware of it, you're drawn up to stand. The joy in your chest is so intense it's starting to hurt. It's as if something is trying to burst out of the room, or a dislocated bone needs to be reset, or an un almost unbearable feeling of restrained tension that makes your hair stand on end. Jiro, says Mercedes, but her voice is different. You can hear it from everywhere in the room, from your bones. It resonates and reverberates around in your stomach, in your brain, in the tank. Jiro, she says again, but stronger. And this time, the name rings like a pure tone in your head, making you cover your ears and close your eyes as your vision wavers and flexes, as if your corneas shivered in the frequencies of her voice. But just as soon as she says the name the second time, the resonance seems caught by something, swallowed up. You open your eyes just in time to see silver-blue light flash in the tank, boiling the water, or at least filling it with so much air that the muck becomes crystal clear, and a shock of cold wind arcs through the room, making you think of glaciers and ice boxes and, confusingly enough, a strange space station with an indoor sea, before Hoshi erupts from the tank in a flurry of liquid and black hair. Long black hair. To your surprise, Mercedes is holding Hoshi up by the armpits, guiding him to the edge of the tank, and he's... fine. Normal. Well, glowing, but that happens often enough. What can you do? The rush of relief and gratitude puts you back on your butt as you lean back against the stone walls and try to let the flood of nausea, endorphins, and adrenaline go somewhere other than out of your mouth. With the corner of your mind, you note that your hands and legs are shaken and you've bitten through your lip. Burke, my love, did you miss me? Were you worried that I'd leave you all alone? He's smiling. You can see pale silver-blue irises in his face, crinkled with happiness and laughter. You know that joy came from him and from Des, but that voice, Hoshi's insolent, arrogant voice, that smooth insult that bothers you more because you did miss him and you were worried about him and you're sitting here shaking over such a fucking asshole and if you weren't so relieved, you'd drown him just on principle. You can't stop looking at him. Naked, beautiful Hoshi is smiling at you with Mercedes' hands protectively still on his shoulders. Without a word, you get up and run your hands along his new face. Gently, tenderly, from forehead to shoulder, neck to nose, you trace his face, leaning in to make sure it smells like him, feels like him, and it would convince the cold thing inside of you to relax finally. It takes a minute, when he places a hand on yours to trace with you, and you can feel his breathing match yours, and all the bones are right, and all the hollows are right, and only then can you relax. You let the air out of your lungs, rear back, and punch him hard in the face, storming out to sleep on Shori, disgusted with the whole situation. Stupid space lizards and their stupid fake skins and their stupid needs you think on your way out. 
At least Shori can keep her goddamn mouth shut. Metaphorically speaking, of course, because the door is sort of her mouth and all. Oh, hell, get a grip, Burke. Just get a grip. <laughs> Episode 13. He's dead. What? You say cleverly, trying to remember what Mercedes was talking about. Who? Daiki, she says, tapping the side of your head and checking your pupil responsiveness ostentatiously. It's all over the news feeds in town. Bunch of corporate peace officers were making noises about it today when I was snooping around. Weren't you paying attention? Of course not, you say, turning back to the new digital readout you'd managed to get Shorei to agree to in relief. I thought you meant Hoshi. Why would Hoshi be dead? She asked, obviously confused. He's not really alive, anyway. At least not like we're used to. You know, it's said that the Sunyata used to have physical bodies, like real humanoid shapes, but that something happened in the scream that split them into the void, trapping them forever, but that, uh-huh, you say dismissively, her talking is annoying you, and you want to finish drawing up the control center schematic before Hoshi wakes up and becomes demanding. He's been feeling much better lately, to your considerable confusion. Anyway. That's great, Des, but would you mind shutting up for a little while now? No one cares about ancient history. We've got pretty current problems. She shrugs and sits on one of Shori's new reinforced vertebra, about ten feet off the deck after a delicate little jump that looks effortless. You watch her for a moment, impressed. Do you have an exoskeleton or something? How do you do that? She laughs and swishes her feet back and forth, her palms tucked under her thighs like a little girl. Oh, I see, Cats. You're impressed by my physicality, but not with my understanding of universal history. I see what your priorities are. You're confused. Well, duh, history is hardly useful, and being able to vertical jump ten feet off the ground with no effort is pretty damn impressive. And pretty damn practical. You put your hands on your hips. Do you think I could install something that would let me do that, too? I'm sure you could, Cass Birkenfield, but then what would I do? She asks reasonably enough. But something in the tone of her voice seems to be laughing at you. You can't figure it out. She always seems to think something is funny, but it's never anything normal or understandable. What do you mean, what would you do? You ask, even more confused. It's just jumping. You do the same stuff you always do. Or it could be seen as a metaphor for our places in this world, on this team, together in this place. I jump, you do not. You shoot, I do not. Each one in one place and not the other. You roll your eyes and turn your attention back to the electronics. Oh, for God's sakes, give me a break, lady. A break of what? Easy on the mambo jumbo, you grumble. It's bad enough when you do it by accident. Somehow it's worse when you're trying to teach me something or be wise or whatever. You're going to give me hives. Mercedes bursts out in laughter and leaps down to give you a delighted kiss on one of your cheeks. You are a terrible person, Cass. I love it. You squirm away and rub her kisses off like you were a little kid avoiding a grandma. Just then, Hoshi's voice rumbles out from the control center entrance. Mercedes, are you torturing Kaz? That's so nice of you to fill in for me. He's still weak and has to lean on Shori even for just a short walk from his quarters, and something sharp stabs you under the ribs to see the harsh shine of turquoise still under his skin. He's still not fully integrated, you think, worried. Dez obviously sees the same thing and unselfconsciously runs her hands up and down the shell, grabbing Hoshi's chin and staring deep into his eyes. You notice they're a muffled silver color today, tinged faintly purple. You like the way you can see his emotions in the color, 
but the thought makes you uncomfortable, so you quickly look away. And pretend not to notice Mercedes' sidelong look and twitchy little half-smile. Look how much Kaz worries about you, Hoshi, says Des, rubbing her face along Hoshi's new skin. But I think you're doing well. Maybe another day or two before the integration takes. I am not as good as your mother, I think. You realize you're scowling at Des as she pulls her face away from Hoshi and gives you a bland look. It's physical contact, Kaz, not a threat. Hoshi is a touch healer. It's easier for him to center and integrate when I touch him. And there's more energy in the face and hands, face and head than hands. Relax. <laughs> you don't like the self-satisfied smile that Hoshi gives you, and you don't like the little knot that forms in your guts. Well, it's none of my business, you grump. You can be all over each other for all I care. Just seems like Hoshi should be taking it easy and not being all... You don't know the word you want, and you're pretty sure you're making an ass of yourself, so you just stop. Hoshi grabs Dez's hand and snuggles it ostentatiously while looking straight at you. Poor Kaz, you know you're not allowed to touch me. You'd probably just punch me in the face again anyway, and that's hardly helpful, he says, and you feel a strong urge to do it again. He grins at you as if he knows. Did you want to help me integrate? I'm sure if you were with me, it would go a lot faster. I'd get to have a lot more physical contact than Dez can give me. He drops Dez's hand to stand closer to you. You'd be doing me a favor, he says on a long breath out. You can see his irises more clearly now. Moonlit midnight clouds of purple and silver seem to co-opt your attention, and you're having trouble remembering what you were talking about or why he's standing so close. Hmm? You say cleverly, wanting to watch the shifting patterns in his eyes more closely. I wanted to say thank you for all your help, he says, taking another couple steps closer. Des said you helped start up the Pontifax programming for my shell. Thank you. You have absolutely no idea what he's talking about, but he's close enough you can feel the solidity of him, the little sparks of electricity that seem to be under his skin. You just stand there staring at him, wishing he would touch you. Are you two always like this? Asked Mercedes from back up on her perch. You should just bang already. Or still. No, definitely still. You flick your eyes up to her. She's leaning on one of her thighs with her head resting comfortably on Shori's internal membranes. I mean, seriously, do you want me to go back down into town for a couple hours? Seems like you two need a moment, or three. You realize how close Hoshi's gotten and how easily he's manipulated you, and you give him a fierce scowl and worm delicately away from him, very carefully not touching him. Shut up, Dez, you say. But it doesn't come out very convincing, and Hoshi just smiles at you, backing away with his hands up. Someday, Kaz. You are going to come begging for it, and I am going to completely humiliate you when that day comes, he says, laughing almost to himself. It's going to be the sweetest feeling in the world to put you on your knees like that. Again. He gingerly drops himself into one of the chairs and leans back against it. I can't wait. I'll even let you be on top. Fuck you, you say. Never gonna happen. You make your way down to the engine room, even as you see Dez drop to the ground and smack Hoshi across the back of his head. She says something you can't hear, but you're much more interested in escaping to the safety of Shori's heart than listening to one more second of whatever madness Hoshi was dragging you into.
Episode 14. You're back home, safe, comfortably ensconced in the Mentem Shell recharge port your mother got for you as you started up your research obligations. She'd smiled at you when she'd unveiled it in your room, your own room. You'd been the only clone to survive the activation sequence, but it still felt strange to be by yourself. K.A.S. Good morning. You could feel her voice vibrating all around you as your full senses came online, and the world was full of color and light. It felt good. No, it felt addictive, this flood of sensations. Mother stroked your face and told you how special you were. You blink. The scene shifts. You've been active for a while. Your Mentem shell can augment perception and information retention to an amazing extent, but you want more. Mother has given you access to the whole research and development lab works for Thiel Industries. No instructions. She just gave you the access codes and let you play. Whatever you were interested in. All you had to do was request materials or personnel, and there they were, waiting for you. Intoxicating stuff. The organic base making up your shell still needs to sleep and eat occasionally, which is annoying. You've already switched out a number of systems for purely mechanical augmentation. All you want to do is work. You breeze through subject after subject, field after field. You never see where your research goes or that there's anyone else but mother. And the lab technicians, usually droids, passing in and out of the lab like silent ghosts. Silent, obedient ghosts. One day, you notice that the work isn't as satisfying. Something's missing. The pain in your chest, the pressure, is unpleasant. When Mother comes to see you for your daily visit, you tell her your chest hurts. Your chest? Kaz, that's silly. You know you don't have any emotions. We made you that nice hormonal-blocking cocktail to make sure of it, didn't we? Yes, you say, nodding your head. It had been nice when you were first activated and afraid all the time. Emotions are very distracting and unnecessary. But mother, I've adjusted the cocktail parameters and I'm still getting this feeling. You pause, raising your hand to watch the muscles and bones shake from something. And the shaking, it won't stop. Why, mother, I can't find anything in the Mentem user ma manual. She takes your hand and strokes along the integumentary covering, making you shiver. She notes the reaction. You are unusually connected to your somatosensory cortex, my dear. Most unusual for a shell to be so sensitive to physical contact. Besides, you know you're the first The user manual doesn't apply here. You're not sure why, but you feel something hot and unpleasant coil around your stomach. Is that bad, Mother? I'm sorry, I don't mean to do it. She pats you and places your hand back into your lap. You've been doing an awful lot of self-augmentation, haven't you? Expanses, expansions to the shell's memory and processing speed in your secondary cortex? Yes, mother, you nod enthusiastically. I've identified a whole new set of organic and inorganic processing languages that could be used. Dear, be quiet. You know I don't like to hear about your work. You can provide a write-up like normal and send it to me when we're done. <laughs> yes, mother. You shut your mouth and try to swallow the excited words and concepts. 
She grips your face to rotate the head of the unit back and forth and track your eyes. Most unusual KAS for such a strong connection. You will need to sever it, I think. We'll download your cortices into something a little less exciting for you. A nice droid or mechanical shell would be more appropriate, I think. Such a shame. Dementum shell has such potential. <laughs> she sighs and releases your face. You miss the contact immediately. But mother, I don't want to be purely mechanical, you start to say, only to have her hush you with a flick of her wrist. Kaz, darling, it doesn't particularly matter what you want now, does it? You're here for mother. And if you're too distracted by having an organic body, you're not doing the research mother needs, are you? You try very hard to shut down whatever is happening in your body that is so unpleasant. You think it's probably a resurgence of emotions, but you can't tell what's a normal biological function and what's endocrinal or emotional at this point. You try to think of something important to her you can leverage to keep your body. Something in you rebels against losing it. A violation of your programming, you think and wonder at the internal insurrection, but you're careful to keep that thought to yourself. Mother, maybe it would be better to keep this organic shell. The augmented bioreality on the organic base has a number of unique testing opportunities for it. I could even help with some of your other human research teams. You look down at the frail skin covering delicate bones overlaid with memory conduit and biogel. I know I'm not a combat or labor model, but there might be some applications where having an internal documentation of biological effectors and dose responses might be useful. Mother taps her lips, considering. Be silent. I didn't tell you to argue with me. She stops again as if another thought has occurred to her. You are very weak, K.S. We would have to invest a considerable amount of time and money into making you more robust. And what about those pesky emotions that keep distracting you, hmm? She draws her fingernails along your skin again, and it's intoxicatingly pleasurable. You close your eyes against the firestorm of sensory responses. Your hormonal centers set off at the contact. So sensual, she says almost to herself, continuing to trace down your skin. It's a shame you're not real. She leans back as if making up her mind about something. But I don't fuck information, even ones as pathetically needy as you. You don't know what she's talking about. You've never encountered those words in that order and only blink incomprehendingly with her. She shifts uncomfortably on the chair and finally stands to pace around the room. You would have liked to ask her if she was all right, if she needed something, but she's told you to be quiet, and you always do what Mother tells you. K.S., she finally says, explain to me how to build a mentum shell, in simple language, if you would be so kind. Of course, Mother. A mentum shell is a state-of-the-art, proprietary, organic-based humanoid form designed for improved perception and cognition of non-binary-based information transfer. In order to create that transfer, the mentum organic base is a cloned hybrid of a species with abnormally high mentation and psychic processing power, 
At approximately eight weeks, a metapsionic of sufficient strength usurps the normal entrance mental, mental processing of the clone with a neural trap, killing its organic brain, but leaving the body alive and under the governance of an organic AI linked to an external machine, external mainframe. At this point, the metapsionic may insert any amount of information at the required frequency and density to allow the mentem to quote-unquote live. This is an extremely taxing maneuver that offers requires a surge of multidimensional energy that can kill the metapsionic if not properly managed. Since metapsionics and adept-level metapsionics are extremely rare, a low-level psionic under the influence of certain drugs or exposed to high enough radiation levels can sometimes be used instead although mortality rates are extremely high for non-adept level practitioners attempting this transfer. So they are. So they are, she murmurs. K.S., do you know who the metapsionic was who integrated you? No, mother, you say surprised. Why would I? She chuckles. Because you know everything? You start to respond, but she shuts you down immediately. No, dear, that was not an invitation to ruminate. She gently moves her head back and forth as if her spine hurts. K.A.S., the metapsionic who integrated you was named Fen. Does that name ring any bells with you? Can you tell me anything about him? She's looking at you intensely now, but you're not sure why. No, mother, I've never heard of a Fen before. Fen or Var, she corrects you, turning and staring deeply into your eyes. Dear, could it be possible that Fen is still in there somewhere? She taps your skull and you blink. No, mother, there's no evidence that a metapsionic can survive a transfer gone wrong, and there's no evidence that multidimensional energy, such as that manipulated by a metapsionic, can retain any intelligence or personality from the practitioner. Are you sure, K.S.? She leans close to you. Are you very sure? Because it sounds like my brand new, state-of-the-art organic computer likes its body and wants to live, and that sounds like a very human need. A computer that suddenly has developed very human emotions that will not go away. And the way it looks at me reminds me very strongly of an old acquaintance of mine who passed away very recently, bringing you online. So, K.S., I'm going to ask you again. What are you? I... You falter. You don't know what you are. The question is completely alien to you. Answer me, K.S., what are you? I am a mentum, mother, you say, confused at her question and confused as to why your stomach hurts when you've already been given the answer. By mother, no less. Your mentum. A new kind of shell computing designed for information collection, processing, and integration into new forms. I have the consolidated research and raw data of the entire Thiel Industries in my cortex. I'm even registered as one of your employees. You cock your head to one side, suddenly realizing the discontinuity. Although, considering I am not human, strictly speaking, and Thiel Industries only employs humans, that could be confusing. But considering that fabricating shells is strictly illegal, perhaps it would be better to be registered under an official name. Shut up, dear, Mother says. There's a long pause. All right, she says finally. If you want to keep your body, let's find out what happens. She looks you up and down. Your body is only a dozen years old, after all. It may just take a few months to iron out the kinks. But Kaz, listen to me. 
You can have this body, but if you detect any ghosts in the shell responses, or you start performing behaviors that are not explicitly authorized by me, I will pull you apart molecule by molecule. Her eyes are intense. You don't understand why, but you can feel them pulling at you. I stand to make an awful lot of money with you. Don't you dare fuck it up. Do you understand? You swallow and nod convulsively. Yes, mother. Good. I want you to focus on Biogen for a little while. Report to pharmaceuticals. They have some interesting results I want to explore, and your little internal sensors may just be the thing they need. Yes, mother. You can hear an automated distress crawl repeating somewhere in the tunnels, echoing off the ancient stone and piles of filth left from a dozen centuries of neglect and looting and quickly turn down your audio receptors. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Today looks like a no. Your processor ignores you and you can hear the annoying whine in stereo sound against the monotonous dripping of something, no doubt disgusting. It puts you decidedly on edge. Mercedes notices. She turns to look back at you, placing a hand on the sewer walls for balance. It makes your skin crawl to think of what's living on that wall. What's wrong with you today, she asks, without any heat. Are you okay? You didn't have to come with me, you know. I'm happy to try and get whatever parts. I'm here, aren't I? You growl at her and resolutely put your head down to shoulder past her. There's no way you could possibly know what we need. She nods, deftly running up the wall to land in front of you as you stomp away and take the lead again. You're absolutely right. Aren't I lucky that you're here with me? Don't make fun of me. Who's making fun? I never have company on the way to the central core. It's nice. You eye a giant puddle of standing liquid and wonder what sorts of terrible things will happen to you when you step into it, when Mercedes whistles loudly enough to get your attention. She's turned and started her way up a decrepit cast iron ladder. You exhale in relief. Um, at the thought of getting out. So what are we getting again? She asks as, you, as she pulls you up out of the hole with almost no discernible effort. A pancake matrix? Pan-Opticon Matrix, you huff, smoothing your clothes and resettling Zubeda against your back. Now that the ACOG site was fully integrated into your cortex, the rifle felt more like an appendage than a dead woman's alien, unintentional gift. Oh, right. What's that? She asked, tugging at your hand to follow her into yet another corridor of identical prefab buildings. The only difference was that these were not built underground and converted to waste management tunnels. There was sunlight, and occasionally people but the same rough, poor, decrepit buildings. You wouldn't understand if I tried to explain it to you, you say. Des, is there a reason we had to crawl through 10 miles of sewage when this godfucked town had a proper street the whole time? You point to the very serviceable and very conveniently not disgusting roads stretching out towards the jungle. She cranes to look at you, cranes to look around you towards the street and shrugs. If you wanted to hit a corporate salvage party, or a corporate mining party, or a corporate timber, timber survey, or corporate hunting party, 
I'm not a big fan, though. She pulls you into the shadows of the prefab sprawl. I figured with your fear about Thiel, I wouldn't have to convince you. Even the word sends a jolt of ice down your spine. As if to underscore her comment, a brutal paramilitary vehicle, all angles and gun ports and throbbing exhaust, emerges from that nice road. You have a moment of deja vu as the twisted Ouroboros dragon insignia of Thiel Industries plastered on the side of the truck passes by you. It makes you shiver, and you're suddenly glad for the muck and the poverty around you. She's not here. She can't find you. You're dead. No one will look for you. Not here. You're safe. Mercedes wraps her arms around you and echoes your own thoughts out loud. You're safe. Don't worry. No one in that truck even knows who you are. They're all just thinking about getting paid and what a shithole world this is. Don't worry, Cass, I'm here. Get out of my head, you croak, but your throat is dry. You know, it's really rude to read people's thoughts like that. I know, she says comfortably, but doesn't let go of you. You don't fight her. Instead, you close your eyes against the fear and just stand there breathing for a minute, unaccountably comforted with her against you. And I thought I'd been doing so well. It takes you a few minutes, but finally you pull your head up and Mercedes takes a step back, eyeing you critically. You internally cringe, waiting for her to make fun of you or some sort of comment, but when you think that, she scowls at you and just says, Ready? You nod, and she continues leading you towards the central core. Once upon a time, at least according to Mercedes, Sandeep had been a nice world. Its capital was a thriving central city, and it was one of the primary worlds of Sunyata. But then, the Sunyata disappeared, and the federal Terran mandate tried to take over. For the next hundred years, there was only war and resource plundering from the corporations and bad management from the Terran mandate. The world that was left was a broken shell of itself. Stay close to me, please, whispers Mercedes as you stare up into the huge stone ruins looming above the prefab ghettos. Giant anchors of what could have been real cities, space form, spaceport platforms, thousand-level building complexes, all in intensely decorated, beautifully curving shapes, cut apart brutally as if snapped off by a monster. The ghettos of the remaining residents seem to huddle into the ancient ruins like chicks. You draw your attention back to Mercedes and the heat-heavy, dank roads twining into the heart of the old city, rising up out of the jungle. After a moment, you notice people glaring at Mercedes. Some step off the road. A man spits at her. She doesn't acknowledge him, and he doesn't press the issue. A woman steps in front of Des and bows her head, mumbling something you can't catch. Mercedes smiles a little and lays her hands on the woman's ears, frowns a little, and then makes a pulling motion. You can't see anything happen, but the woman's face is alight when she stands back up and hugs Mercedes. You glare at her. What was that? What? The whole blessing bullshit thing you did there. I took her pain away. What? Mercedes gives you a little exasperated sigh. It's the same thing I did for you, you dense thing. I took her pain away. You scowl. No, you didn't. She turns back up the path, ignoring another citizen giving her the stink eye. Ah, good of you to clear that up for me. I was being serious, Des. So was I. You have to jog a little to catch up with her. She's walking very quickly, and you finally give in to the urge to hold onto her belt sash like a little kid. 
It charms and horrifies you at the same time. First, that you've been wanting to do that all day, and second, how nice it is to feel connected to someone. You almost pull away at that point, but Des closes her hands around your fingers and says, leave it, I don't want you getting lost. Another person steps out of Mercedes's way, ostentatious and obnoxious. Hey Des, you say, why do people not like you in this city? Oh, because I'm a monk. They hate monks. We're supposed to have caused something bad, killed the sinata, sold out, sold out to corporate, abandoned the people, something. Oh, the accusations sound serious to you. Well, did you? Of course not. People are dumb, she says dismissively, and violent. There's a reason our monastery is in ruins. She looks around at the poverty and the disease along the streets and sighs again. And a reason why people suffer. Poor things. She sounds like she actually means it, and it surprises you. Poor things? Don't they hate you? Didn't they destroy your home and stuff? You say, trying to understand. Yes, she says, nodding, and their own homes with it, and this is why we can't have nice things. And Cass, pay attention here. Where would we find the pancake matrix? Is it more computer or more engineering or what? Panopticon. Computer. It's an integrating unit for Shori. She doesn't have quite enough brain power to run all the upgrades, so I want to give her a boost. You catch a quick glimpse of Mercedes' smile as she says, There now. And who says that I wouldn't understand when I have such an excellent translator here? <laughs> There's a disturbance up ahead in the market, and people in black and gold uniforms seem to be in a shouting match. You crane your head to look through the crowd, but Des yanks you into another back alley. Nope. We'll not be going that way today. You're grateful she knows where you are. Your AI is making a map as you go, but that's not very helpful when you don't know where you're going to. Des, we're almost there, I promise. Afterwards, there's a candy shop we can go to. You'll love it. What are you, five? You ask in wonder, letting her tug your hand around yet another corner of busted up cheap buildings. Or maybe 50? Are you someone's grandma dressed up like a 20-year-old? She throws her head back in a delighted laugh. Yes. Yes to what? Yes to all that. Lovely. Just lovely. Kaz, you were wasted in your old life. I didn't have an old life, you protest. I just have this one. She nods, clearly watching for something only she knows on the street. Yes, exactly. That's just what I said. Now I know why they hate monks here, you mutter to yourself, constantly spouting bullshit like that. I heard you, Cass. Sorry, miss. Finally, finally, after yet more twisting alleyways and back paths, Mercedes leads you out into what can only be called a market, with a capital M. Whatever might be wrong with the city currently is out of sight here in the core. It must have been a spaceport or some other giant building. You've come out onto the top level of a spiraling promenade, reaching down dozens of levels into the earth, each, one, each level built of layers of carved stone and some material that shines black and hard like obsidian, but when you touch it, it feels warm and almost alive. Welcome to the core, says Des reverently, the last beating heart of Sandeep. The first level seems to be for clothes, jewelry, entertainment. Mercedes leads you past gold and emeralds, synth pearls still forming in great huge tanks wedged up against the black walls. The second layer seems to be home goods and domestic wares. Weapons and armor comes next. Then, 
If you could have designed a gigantic workshop with a thousand different cultural influences from two millennia of galactic research and field impl implementation, it might have looked something like the computing and information technology section of the core. Merchants had things you didn't even recognize, and you thought that was impossible. Des has to pull you away from fascinating booths to get you focused on the panopticon, and you're almost put out by it. But Des, you say, stumbling a little, and she gives as she gives you a less than gentle tug. That was a pristine Catalan diligence map, an original reconstruction of one of the preliminary Galaxy-class shipboard processing cores. I do not know what that means, but I am not going to stand around all day. Find this pancake matrix of yours and so we can get candy and go home to Hoshi. She shakes her head a little as if under pressure. So many people here, so many voices. She sees you looking. It's most uncomfortable, Cass. Please hurry up. Yes, miss, you say glumly. Normally you'd agree with her, but this place, this place was marvelous. You sigh. She elbows you, so you keep moving. You poke your way through another dozen shops and displays, worming deeper into the heart of the promenade, when suddenly there's a flush of some familiar scent. It's an odd, dusty scent at odds with the filth and humanity in the jungle world. Something in it reminds you of snake skin and hideously serrated teeth. You freeze, tracking around you with your senses engaged, trying to remember why it matters and where it comes from. Blue eyes meet yours. Black eyes meet yours across the crowd. Black eyes. Set in a small frame. In a black uniform with a waterfall of pure white hair streaming down her back. And the field dragon stamped on the heart. Your mouth goes dry. You break off, shuffling back into the crowd, slouching, hoping that whoever that was wouldn't notice you. You make a surreptitious glance back, but the figure is gone, replaced by random customers and pedestrians. Your AI makes a little notification sound and registers the panopticon on your secondary scanners, making you turn away from the main promenade and into what could be an offshoot alley, like a little curl of a fern's leaf. Des, I... You turn to tell her you found it, but she's disappeared as well. You're not particularly concerned, since you do have your AI tracking map, but it annoys you that one, she can do that in the first place, disappearing like that, and two, she didn't tell you where she was going. The shop is more of a collection of trash than actual goods. All of it displayed in precarious piles stacked around the middle pavilion-like enclosure wrapped in iron fencing. The proprietor glares at you. No deal with artificials. Find somewhere else, buddy, it says, forcing common speech from a pair of vocal cords and a mouth you can't see under its respirator and thermal suit. Relax, you say dismissively. I've got enough organic parts to qualify as a sentient. Don't worry, I can pay you. I've got papers. <laughs> papers, it hisses, and extends an arm with a scanner expectantly. You try not to roll your eyes, only press your finger against the test band and wait for the prick. 
Sure enough, the little needle stabs you obediently and sprawls genetic information all over the shopkeeper's interface. You don't like this part, the waiting. You had the genetic codes rebuilt exactly. You went through and personally changed all your information, but you hated using it. Someday, you just knew someone was going to find out you're a fraud, a thing, not a person. They'll drag you off and lock you in a lab somewhere. But not today. The little creature grunts and nods and replaces the scanner. Good, what is it you want? You point to the back. Panopticon. I'll give you 30 kilo credits for it. No, 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 it shakes its head. That unit is worth far more, 85. You fire up your Wi-Fi scanner and briefly lay your hand against the shop walls, searching for the information data link that should run his computer system. His security is a joke. Within half a heartbeat, his entire history and business documentation is safely getting sorted by your AR. AI. 40, then. And you shouldn't even be trying to sell it. It's 20 years old, missing a couple parts, and it looks like someone lit it on fire at one point. The shopkeeper looks back at the matrix and shrugs. It is a nice unit, gently worn. 60. The metal grating of his walls presses into your hand. You can feel your skin heating up with the information transfer as your AI notifies that it's found something in the library. Legal documents. A privateer's commission from the Federation. A contract with Thiel, a trade agreement for human slaves on and off world. You can't decide which is worse, the corrupt traffic in living beings or the bureaucratic bureaucraticization of that traffic. You feel your lips curling in disgust and release the link. 45, and I don't tell Thiel that you're double dipping with them and the mandate. for the slave cargo and the dream drug you have stashed behind your storage area. What? No slaves. No dream. Nothing like that, it says in denial. Besides, not slaves. I just transport temporary help across system boundaries as part of a service company. This everyone knows. 45, you say again, and you're disgusting. Peace, it says. 45 is charity. I give to you for nothing, since you are such a nice being. Great. You exhale and move to enter the compound to pick up the matrix. No, 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 it says, waving you back. I will bring it out. Please, a moment. You lean against the fencing, waiting, and only slowly realize Mercedes is back next to you. Des, where have you been? Oh, here and there, she says. You know how it is. Teleportation accidents and animals getting loose and all kinds of excitement on some of these levels. Are we almost done? You frown. Animals? Teleportation? What did you do? We should go now, she says, and you become aware of a swirl of sound and pressure that can only mean a large number of people moving in a small space. Des, here you are, gentle beings, says the shopkeeper as it drops the panopticon onto the counter and you transfer the credit chips from your fake account to the deposit stick and hand it to them. Good thing credits aren't real, you think appreciating your capitalistic society more than usual and its simplistic banking software. I'll be damned if Hoshi is going to have to do anything like that again for us, idiot that he is. The shopkeeper's scanner lights up green as the payment is accepted and you heft the matrix on your shoulders to follow Mercedes out into the chaos. 
On the main promenade, you see the black pool of corporate officers moving like spilled ink through the regular customers. There's a shock of backdraft as another hover car filled with thugs, filled with corporate, drops down onto the level. Pedestrians scatter in a mad dash for exits and other levels to avoid the crush. You see Mercedes is no longer next to you. She's leaping from shop awning to the promenade fence, leaping effortlessly across people's shoulders and swinging from hanging signs to a light on each one of the black-clad figures. Wherever her feet touch, the black uniform drops. Her fists are moving so fast you can only see her hands when she extends out her staff briefly to touch the ground before launching into another attack. You get a move on it. If Des was in action, it wasn't because she was bored. An image of the black-eyed stare from across the marketplace makes you shiver again as you bury yourself in the crowd headed for the surface. The emergency avenues work. You can feel the lift shuddering beneath you as you and a pack of people jam themselves into the escape ports and get launched to the surface. When the doors open, you can just see the garish and clashing colors of the civilians streaming out into the old city, alleys and tiny streets full to bursting. The noise and the pressure are amazing. You're pushed and pulled and run over a dozen times before you manage to haul yourself into the hollows of what might have been a pharmacy. People are starting to loot and the chaos is spreading. You tone down your reactions, pleased to see that your emotional reactivity is actually responding to the chemical depressants for once, and peek your head into the store. Expensive medicines, rare medicinal flowers, alien therapies, and, a gene, and gene suppressing pills are still there. You sweep them off the shelves and into your pack, just fitting in with the local crowd, you think, pleased with yourself. I bet Hoshi could use these for something. There's a heavy sounding scrape followed by a furious grinding sound. You look up and out over the shop lintel and see a combat vehicle, feel, rolling into position. There's an ominous clicking sound and then strafes of gunfire that make you slam to the ground and roll under the nearest shelter. There's screaming, shouting that's familiar, more gunfire, then silence. Deep silence, not even screaming. You lift your head back up and roll to the bottom of the lintel again, peeking up over the ruins of the glass doors. Black and gold peacekeepers are walking through the street, hauling up bodies, shooting or stabbing them, and then dropping the remains. Other peacekeepers follow behind to collect bodies in a red vehicle with another corporate symbol that you're not familiar with. Your blood pressure and cortisol levels spike. They're going to find you. They'll know. They'll take you back to mother. The thought makes a column of ice not even your depressants can thaw move from your gut to the base of your skull. She'll take me apart piece by piece. She'll extract every ounce of information from every cell in my body in the most painful way possible. She'll denature me. You rearrange your pack, the Panopticon and Zubeda, so the rifle is now comfortably extended with you in a partial sitting position, braced against the pack's shoulder pad. You activate the sight. There are 14 peacekeepers in a combat vehicle between you and the nearest tunnel entrance by the most efficient route. You have 10 rounds. You kick yourself for not building an extended magazine or a bump stock for automatic fire. But here we are, you think philosophically, as you narrow in on your first shot. There, your new targeting system synced with Zubeda's ACOG overlays two targets. You exhale, consciously relaxing your mind as you start setting up the second and third shots in the target queue. You're not conscious of squeezing the trigger or of the sprint through the streets to your next position. Your organic brain only catches up once you're tucked into the second position. 
fire, fire, fire. The next three shots catch targets three, four, and five. Before five has fallen, you're moving to position three, but this time the debris isn't solid. There's a red uniformed corporate peacekeeper kneeling near what should be your position. You put a bullet through it and quickly find a new one. You bring up the targeting scanner and quickly fire three rounds that should have hit. Instead, they bounce off some type of shielding. You're pinned down with two shots left. Your targeting cue is a wide variety of poor probability and bad choices. Shots ping around you and you hear the telltale scrape of a gun turret locking into position. Death is a relief, not a punishment, you think, relaxing against the stone barricade and closing your eyes. However, in the next moment, there wasn't a barrage of death consuming you, but an insistent poking that makes you crack one eyeball open to see Mercedes looking very annoyed. What are you doing, sleeping? She hisses at you. I need you to shoot people. I only have two shots, you say, a little nonplussed. It... Oh, for heaven's sakes, do I have to do everything around here? You watch as she launches herself off the walls of the building, falling behind each peacekeeper with that same effortless grace from the core. Only this time you can choose she's taking ammunition off the fallen, quick like a pickpocket, and launching herself at the next one. They fire at her. Each one of the peacekeepers, even the heavy gun turret, spews bullets at her like fireworks of destruction. You watch as her form sort of ripples, as if her whole body was turned to water or air. You can't be sure, but you almost think that the bullets pass through her. But that's impossible. You lose sight of her for a moment, but in the next, she's back next to you with a rag full of magazines staring at you expectantly. You obligingly shove them into your ammo carrier and pack and reload Zubeda. You know, you say almost gently, if you punch them enough to steal their ammo, why didn't you just finish them off? She turns up her nose at you in disgust. I don't kill people, Cass. That would be unethical. But it's okay to help me kill people? Yeah, more or less, she says, wagging her head back and forth as if considering it. Probably less than more, but could you please hurry it up? I don't want anyone following us when we get back into the tunnels. Aye, aye, miss, you say, making easy work of whatever's left as she drags you towards the easiest sewer connection. Whatever you say. Episode 15. You stomp back onto Shore, slamming the reinforced door behind you intentionally in Mercedes' face. She dodges easily, flipping over your head and skipping up the steps towards a control center, seemingly oblivious. It just annoys you, annoys you more. Burke, where have you guys been? Hoshi's sleepy voice echoes down to you as you make it up the final few stairs. You chuck the bag of looted medicinal goods at him once you're close enough and huff into the unoccupied pilot's chair, co-pilot's chair, resolutely looking away from Mercedes and dropping the panopticon next to the integration panel. Working, you say back to him curtly, since evidently I'm the only one that can kill anything or do anything productive on this whole damn crew. You're late, Hoshi says, smiling at you and brushing your hair back gently. I was worried. You smack his hand away and glare. Mercedes chuckles. You stare at her accusingly. Ask the monk you say, turning resolutely back to the panopticon. There I was, minding my own business, and that freak of nature starts a riot. I did not, said Mercedes mildly. I was just investigating something I pricked up from that pretty trooper you were soul-gazing with. When a series of unfortunate events occurred, 
unexpected of something sad, maybe afraid, slipped to that last comment. You ignore it. Hmm. So, so familiar that you had to step in and do something about it? Is that it? What could you have possibly done for a transporter accident and some animals getting out of their cages, you ask cynically, starting to take apart one of Shori's panels and unconsciously extending one of your integration cables to soothe her. Shori hated it when you didn't tell her what you were doing. That wasn't exactly what happened. Mercedes taps her lips and looks at you, considering, consideringly, but doesn't elaborate. Hoshi snorts in amusement. What trooper? Cass doesn't make eyes at anyone. Then this must have been an exception, she says dryly as you try to swallow past the knot in your throat. Don't tell him you think at her. Don't you dare tell him about me, about feel, about any of it. You can hear her sigh and you resolutely try to envision walls going up around your own mind. Oh, for heaven's sakes, the monk says finally. It's not about you, Kaz. Relax. It was about a Sunyata. One of their hunters sensed Hoshi here. I, I guess. I don't know how, but they have some kind of tracker or trigger cued to Sunyata energies. Through you, maybe? Or at least the hunter sensed something on you. The comment makes you start a little. You jerk with a sudden image of one of the biomed research projects that you helped with ages ago. Yes, Mercedes says, as you picture the tracking device in your mind. That must have been what they were using. Can you remember how it works? Maybe we can set up a block or something. Get out of my head, you scream at her. So off balance and terrified of your own memories, you lose control for a moment. You press your hands to your head and feel Shori's wordless reassurance through the data link. It centers you and you're able to drop the able to drop depressants into your systems enough to calm down a little for the short term. Hoshi's familiar scent wafts close to you. He's kneeling next to you, but you're afraid to open your eyes and push your palms deeper against your zygomatic ridges, curling your fingers over your eyes. Curling your fingers into your hair. Burke, is there something you want to tell me? No, you choke out. Leave me alone. Burke, he says again, this time in that silky, pleasant voice that he only uses when he's doing something truly evil. Can you see how I might be just a tiny bit suspicious of you? You make contact with Thiel on a former Sunyata world. Hunters get my location. 
and you just happen to know or have built the very device that they're using to find me. He strokes his hand down your face and you shiver. And you know what they do to Sunyata, don't they? Don't you? How they'll keep me alive in a lab long enough to milk me for snow and then use my shell? And then sell my shell for profit, right? His voice sounded so comforting and amiable again. All you can see is the gray-green of the lab bench as you lean over it to throw up into the sink. The smell of disinfectant and decomposition is all around you. It's in your hair. It's on your skin. Like you'll never be able to wash it off. Whatever woke up in your soul is screaming in mindless, gibbering disgust at the living bodies hooked up to glowing blue machines, alien eyes boring into you, yours in a silent prison of constant despair and agony. The dead ones stacked in neat rows next to their kin, bits of flesh melded with machines, racks of organs waiting for preservatives or reintegration. The constant hum of the biogel chambers growing soulless husks out of the dead, the only sound next to you losing your guts. You can feel Mercedes push Hoshi away from you and place your hands over yours. Like feeling a scab being pulled off, slowly, painfully, the memory seems to recede from your consciousness. It's there, but the emotion, the pain is gone. You blink and let your hands drop down to see Mercedes crush her fists together and a flash, like a string snapping, echoes in your head. Ow, you say, almost exploratory, as you start running a self-diagnostic. It doesn't turn, it doesn't return anything. What was that? My superpower, she says on a sigh, looking more tired than you've ever seen her, other than punching people in the face. Oh, you say rather nonplussed. Thank you? She doesn't reply, but looks from you to Hoshi and back again. Hoshi, Burke is a reincarnated soul trapped in a mentum shell that was responsible for the development of snow and subsequent extinction of the Sunyata. Burke, Hoshi has been hiding that the Sunyata aren't really extinct, but he needs to find them, and the easiest way to do that is to find what's left of his sister at Thiel. He can track her psionic signature since they're related, and he's pretty sure she's either, she's either still alive or just dead. because her metapsionic strength was enough to power the whole snow factory for quite a while. He's planning on trading you for his sister. She sits back looking very pleased with herself. I feel like we may be more productive now. You look at Hoshi. You were going to trade me? Hoshi averts his eyes and Mercedes makes a clucking sound at him. Well, yes, maybe, sort of. I needed to find Thiel first and I thought we'd just sort of figure it out later. You roll to your feet. You fucking asshole. I knew you were evil, you hiss at him, shoving past both the monk and Hoshi. Rot in hell, you bastard. I can't go back. I can't. Burke, you were going to anyway, Hoshi calls after you. Didn't I tell you it was about redemption? I was starting to change my mind. There could be another way to get Chiyoko. Burke, Burke! But you don't respond. 
You've moved into engineering to be closer to Shori and to give Mercedes your old room. Frankly, it's a relief not to have to be next to Hoshi anyway, and you'd rather be here with Shori than stuck with the organics. You ignore the fact that Shori is just a biologically cloned reflection of Hoshi's shell, and that the reason you like her so much better than everyone else is because you have more in common with her operating system than with the kaleidoscope of emotions and needs going on in the control center. It makes you sort of pessimistically righteous to bury yourself down here with nothing but the gentle hum of the auto-translator for Shori's internal process reviews and the scraping of the servo drones like little insects. insects. The constant deep throb of Shori's heart engine as it rotates in its plasma field is very soothing. You slump into your hammock tied carelessly between Shori's rib bones and sway slightly, staring up at the membranes surrounding the room. Organics. Can't trust an organic. But you're an organic, says Mercedes, popping her head into your field of vision. You can't be what? More than 40% augmentation? 38, you grouse. But the Mentem genetic bioengineering and organic operating system is much more impressive than a simple meat body. Ah, of course, my mistake. You turn over and wait for her to leave. She does not. You crane your head over your shoulder to see she's sitting cross-legged next to you, obviously prepared to be there for a while. She looks like she's going to start meditating. Go away, you say, and turn back towards Shori's membranes. You already ruined everything. Go sit with Hoshi and plan out how you're going to abandon me with the fucking feels and sell my life away, why don't you? We already did that. Hoshi thought you might want lunch while we wait. You look at her sharply, but her expression doesn't betray anything. Are you teasing me, you ask? She nods. You exhale hard and let your head fall back. Stop that. I can't tell what's real or important anymore. Hoshi wouldn't abandon you, she says. You snort in disbelief. Of course he would. Look at him. Cold-blooded lizard that he is. He's been planning this for months. All that time with him. All that waste. You throw your forearm over your eyes and notice that you need to dump another round of chemical stabilizers into your system to stop from crying. But you're out, and you don't want to ask Hoshi to synthesize more. You groan as you feel tears starting to come. He's going to trade me. You heard him, Des. I mean nothing to him. He just used me for the ship upgrades, fucked me, and now here we are. My God. Mercedes didn't say anything. You know the worst part? The worst part was the deep down and whatever mutant soul I seemed to have grown, I genuinely had some kind of fucked up interplanetary romance novel getting written for us. Like we were going to be a thing. And I didn't realize I'd written that romance until I heard the trade deal. How could I have done that? What the fuck am I, Des? I'm not a machine. I'm not a shell. I'm not an organic sentient. I'm, I'm what? What is this? You wave a hand to encompass your whole body. I didn't even know I was, what'd you call it? A reincarnated soul? What is that? How can that exist? I shouldn't exist? Christ, you exhale, all of a sudden exhausted. Des, I don't even know what I am. I'm just a collection of random chemical reactions and insanity. Mercedes gives your hammock a little push from behind as you finish speaking, and you have a sudden image of a kid on a playground with his big brother being pushed on the swing set. It's not you. You shouldn't have any memories, but here they are, setting up shop in your head like they're on holiday. Mentems are new, Des finally says, as you sit stewing in silence. There was a reason they were banned. All those metas died in the research labs, just like yours. 
It's bad for business if you kill off a couple too metas. Too many metas. Bad luck, you know. You might be the only Mentum that survived. Ever. It's okay to want to be comforted, Kaz. It's okay to be afraid. I mean, I'm not one for romantic relationships, but it may even be that you need that intimacy to heal and integrate whatever's left of the soul in you with the shell itself. I don't know. You're a unique form of life, Kaz. Perhaps you should be a little kinder to yourself and other people. Hoshi's going to betray me, you hiss. Why should I be kind to the son of a bitch that was going to use me and throw me away? Hoshi won't do anything of the kind, she says, waving you off nonchalantly. Hoshi is a traumatized little kid with a deeply sensitive heart who never got the chance to heal himself, much less figure out how to be kind to others without expecting a transaction. Hell, if you'd been farmed out as a mercenary sawbones slash sexual plaything by the time you were six and abandoned by your closest allies by the time you were ten, you may have some screwed up priorities as well. What? You say cleverly? That happened? She raises her eyebrows at you. You never asked, huh? Yeah, Hoshi's all right. He has a good heart. It just gets confused sometimes by all the poison and piss people keep dumping on it. Including you, actually. She gives you an appraising look. Have you ever wondered what would happen if you were just nice to Hoshi? And, like, loving? You scowl. You hurt him. He'd humiliate me. He'd hurt me. He'd take away my autonomy. Play mind games. Maybe. But you know he does that to you now, and you actually seem to kind of like it she points out, making you grind your teeth in irritation that she was right. Neither of you has a clue how to be good to people or generous with your feelings. Maybe you could practice on each other. You don't know what you're talking about. She uncoils from the floor, gracefully flowing up to stand and twisting her spine as if easing the tension. You're right, Cass. I don't know what I'm talking about. But I can tell you Hoshi won't let you go. He's formed an attachment. If nothing else, he likes messing with you too much to release you. And I doubt if you could leave him now, even if you tried. So instead of fighting and punishing each other for that attachment, you could try making it a point of strength. Working together for once. She leans down to kiss your forehead. She, you pout. Are you going to have the same conversation with Hoshi? She laughs. Of course not. Hoshi is completely different from you. But yes, I'm going to help him see that trading you is not a good idea. And that may, there may be another way to live that doesn't involve revenge and suffering and death. If he's interested. Revenge? Death? The words and seriousness of her phrasing make you pause. Wait, was there more to his plan than just trading me? She nods. Yes, he was going to destroy Thiel down to the last person with a bioengineered virus he'd embedded in you. In me? You pat your body as if you could feel it. That fucker did what? Mercedes takes a deep breath in and sighs out in relief. When he healed you the first time, he seems very conflicted about it now. I'm going to try and help him become less conflicted. A sunyata healer poisoning people is not something we should encourage. That son of a bitch, you fume, getting angry all over again. You see Mercedes roll her eyes and then snap out a hand to lightly flick you in the forehead. Abruptly, the anger disappears and all you want to do is sleep. 
From somewhere fuzzily down in your consciousness, you know what she's done, and you can't decide if you're annoyed or grateful. Oh, for heaven's sakes, Kaz, just be grateful for once, you hear from far away as sleep washes over you. Good Lord, I have to wonder if you were this difficult in your human life as Fen. No wonder the momentum transfer didn't kill you. Get out of my head, you think at her obstinately before losing consciousness. Fucking monks rummaging around in other people's business. It builds character, you silly thing. Now sleep. <laughs>